this stuff is hard. And you got to stay together if you got the guts and you don't find the first door and run out of it <laughs> if you have an opportunity. Welcome to another episode of Splash Considerations. My name is Just Stello Santos, joined by the Massimo of Moxie, Rory O'Toole. Rory, can you feel the heat? No, actually, can you can you feel the heat? Because it's like 90 degrees outside. <laughs> I'm in my backyard right now. It's that hot. Because I got to cool down. You know when it's hot in San Francisco, the rest of the bay is burning up. The rest of California is burning up, literally and figuratively. It is hot as hell right now. But before we get into the Lakers and the Heat, before we get into that finals matchup, we got to give the Nuggets and the Celtics their just due. We got to give the Nuggets and their Celtics their just due. We got to give them their flowers because the long-term future for both of these teams is super enticing. And more so, the, the Nuggets are kind of getting propped up. They're like the team of the future. The Celtics are kind of getting some shade kind of thrown at them just because they've quote-unquote, been here before. And I guess we can start with the Celtics since they were the team that was eliminated just uh, last – was that last night? I'm forgetting the days already. Yes. That was last, yes, that was last night. God, yeah. that, that's COVID timing in a nutshell. But <laughs> we can start with the Celtics. And I've seen a lot of things on Twitter where, like, people went back to the – how they were unwilling to trade Anthony Davis for uh, Brown or Tatum. And I don't want to necessarily get into that, but – I think the thing that we have to recenter this conversation on regarding the Celtics is that Jason Tatum is only 22 years old and Jalen Brown is only 23 years old in terms of where they should be. Like regardless of whether or not they're in the Eastern conference, they're way ahead of schedule and whether or not they should have traded for Anthony Davis. That's an entirely different discussion. I personally fear that they should, that they were right to kind of stand pat. Also, they also have three first-round picks this year. Can do something with that. But I do think that if we start with the Celtics, we have to kind of take a step back and acknowledge if we veer outside the realm of NBA Twitter, hot take Twitter, there's no Skip Bayless here, Shannon Sharp ain't in the building. We have to acknowledge that, relatively speaking, this team is way ahead of schedule. And even with their third loss in the conference finals in like four years, the future is still bright as hell, brighter than my Zoom background. I know y'all can't see my Zoom background, but you, you can tell that it's hot based <laughs> on my Zoom background. Uh, I, yeah, it's funny. I feel like people aren't giving the Celtics that sort of optimistic take because they have overachieved so early on. Obviously, we all remember the Eastern Conference Finals against Cleveland in 2018, 2017. 2018, that was... 2018? Well, they, they were in there in 2017. That's when they won that one game when Avery Bradley... Hit right. That. It was like the Kawhi shot before the Kawhi shot. But that so, wasn't... They weren't really where they are now. Like, it, all of these conference finals teams have been, like, very different. It hasn't been uniform. Right. So, I feel like we, as a species, just... You know, we like stuff that's new and exciting and we haven't seen before. And you make a great point pointing out how young these Celtics actually are, but it feels like they're much older because they've just been in our lives. It feels like they've been in the Eastern Conference for 10 years. Tatum and Brown and Marcus Smart 
And I mean, oh. Brown's been in our lives for longer than that because we went to Cal. Yeah, and Brad Stevens. So people just aren't excited by the Celtics anymore, and they just feel like they're that team that is always, you know, enticing but doesn't have all the pieces they need to make a run. But when you actually look at the facts, this team is still incredibly young. Tatum is not near his prime yet. Brown's still not near his prime. They have – they could get – exponentially better in the next two to three years. And you can build something. Kemba still brings something to the, to the table. Hayward, maybe you can use him as a trade piece. Marcus Smart is pretty underpaid. So the Celtics have a bright future. You still have Brad Stevens, but I think it really is just a case of public perception where it feels like they've been coming up short for a long time and that they've been in our lives for longer than they actually have. Just because that's the consistency of the Celtics and of Brad Stevens era, Boston Celtics teams right now. Yeah, because if you look at the Celtics teams going back to 2017, as I mentioned, they've all been different. Because in 2017, that was still when Isaiah Thomas was. This was before, well, by the time they yeah. made it to Cleveland, Isaiah Thomas, his hip was it was not healthy anymore. But that's when you had a rookie Jalen Brown, you had Avery Bradley, as I mentioned. Believe Jay Crowder was still on that team. I'm trying to remember the yeah, team. I think so. He was still on that team. Urepko. Urepko. <laughs> hey, he was giving them some buckets. Yeah. Uh, you go to 2018, that's when the team really had no business being there. They had that, I think they beat Philly. Injured Kyrie, right? No Kyrie, no Hay- That was when Hayward injured his ankle first game of the season. Right. So it was that unfortunate incident. But then they they had no business really beating that Philly team. I don't think anybody predicted that they would beat Philly. That's when that was the year Marco Bellinelli hit that game. That Al Horford game. dominated Joel Embiid. Why the Sixers signed Horford? Because they're like he's an Embiid stopper. It was it was kind of an idea. You weaken Boston and you give yourself strength when quote-unquote, when that matchup with Giannis happens, although the matchup with Giannis never you, – like, you kind of got to make it to Giannis before you, you start game planning uh, that matchup. But, yeah, in 2018, that was when Tatum was a rookie. He boomed it on LeBron. Brown was in his second year. 2019, should we just insert the clip of Bill Simmons saying that they would win 67 games? <laughs> should we just insert that? Yeah, it was the – Eastern Conference, I have some bad news. You're going to get your butts kicked this year by the Boston Celtics. The entire Eastern Conference. Does that include the entire Philly? Eastern Conference. So weird. Indy and Boston Milwaukee Celtics. and Washington and they're gonna Toronto. Win, they're going to win 67 games. It was the – And then do a Kyrie saying, I got Giannis. Like he could guard Giannis. <laughs> that, was, that was when Kyrie said at the very beginning of that season – at like the the open practice, like if I'll have if y'all resign if y'all have me I'll resign here and then just proceeds to shoot them out of that series, just completely abandons any. What set- does government mean to you, Justice? You're the poli sci major, not me. <laughs> the famous Kyrie uh, cool question to Brad Stevens. Just that was one of the best copy pasta years ever. Just the quotes coming out of that year, Kyrie saying crazy stuff. All the leaks. It's pretty amazing the way they bounce back. They've had a lot of turmoil. They've turned over the team a lot. And they've drafted horribly, for being honest. I mean, Grant Williams has been surprisingly good. But the 
they've kind of squandered some of those draft picks. Yeah, Romeo Langford. Has anyone heard from James Young? <laughs> Has anyone heard from RJ Hunter recently? Man, we got to bring a Celtics fan on and just talk about their drafting. It's been horrendous. And that, that's my boy Shreyas. Every time the every time there's a Celtics game, I really I'm concerned for his mental health, man. There was yeah. also um. I'm forgetting his name, but he was he was like the 16th pick a couple of years in the 2016 draft. He was from France. I'm forgetting his name. France. It's not Semi Ojale, right? It's not Semi Ojale. Here, let me actually look up the name. Well, why you do that? Uh, the Celtics. In a way, this feels like a disappointment. But in the beginning of the year, I believe their ownership said this was going to be a bridge year. So they didn't want to say it was rebuilding, but the way the Celtics looked at it, it was, I mean, I think Danny Ainge publicly questioned how much talent they had. And for them to be in the Eastern Conference Finals with a lot of weaknesses that we saw this year and up and down performances, I still think it was a successful year. Now, what's against... Boston right now is Miami's younger and is only going to get better. And they still have flexibility to sign maybe another big star. Brooklyn is going to be back with Katie and Kyrie. Milwaukee, they'll reload. Raptors, they're always dangerous. And you look at West and us Warriors fans, we know this has been our gap year. And we're about to come back. Healthy Clay, healthy Steph. It's going to be interesting to see whether maybe you'll look back at this time and be like, you know what, Boston, this was your window to actually make something happen in a weaker Eastern Conference. It's the odd variables of the bubble. This Lakers team was flawed. Maybe you could have beat them. I wonder if we're going to look back on that because nothing is guaranteed in the NBA. Windows that you think are going to be open for five to ten years always end up closing way quicker than you anticipate. I still do think they have, like, just with that foundation of Tatum and Brown, who I think at some point could both be top 15 players in the league. Tatum is already kind of on the cups, or if not already being a top 15 player in this league, while Brown is kind of teetering on that line. And one of the things that I want to note is that the gap between Tatum and Brown isn't as wide as people think it is. Also, the player that I was thinking of was, was Gershon Ubiseli. <laughs> oh, my God. 16th overall pick in the 2016 draft. Wow. I was thinking of. That is a throwback. No, that's a good point. I think the Jalen Brown-Tatum dichotomy, they complement each other, but people kind of act like Brown is a one-dimensional player, you know, does the dirty work, but really can't create his own shot. It's not an offensive threat, but it felt like in this series, every time they went to Brown, something good would happen. And his decision-making was, frankly, a lot better than Jason Tatum. And you can, even, you can even make an argument that Brown has added more to his game since coming into the league than Tatum. I think that's a legitimate argument that you can make. I mean, Tatum, I, wa- I was impressed with his playmaking ability. I feel like he expanded upon that. But watching Brown at Cal when he literally could not dribble, like this guy had the worst ball handling. 
Now he's a full-on off-ball threat. He can go off the dribble. He has a few moves. And he's turned himself into a reliable shooter, which at Cal, he was not a reliable shooter either. I think we saw throughout these playoffs just a testament to how much Brown in particular has grown. He was It wasn't just knocking down corner threes. It wasn't just locking down defense because that was kind of the like the floor when he came into the league. He was just going to be like this supremely athletic 3 and D guy if the three-pointer were coming around. As you mentioned, whenever the Celtics kind of got in a rough spot, they would give him the ball and he would just be super aggressive. He was making stuff happen. He had those – I think it, I think it was game five when he had like back-to-back steals. Yeah. So his ability to make stuff happen on – both end of the floor. That's why I just want to bring up that point that that gap is, it's not, it's very small. Sometimes I, f- I would be watching the Celtics and I'm like, I wish they would just give the, the ball to Brown right now instead of Tatum, like trying to go ISO, clear everything out, hold the ball for 20 seconds, then hoist up a three or a mid range jumper. It's like not, not to cap on Tatum. Cause he's obviously a great player too. And I'd still say a bigger offensive threat, than Brown is, and the game comes easier to Tatum than it does to Brown. Sometimes he still feels a little robotic in his movements. But Brown just – he's a smart, smart player. He never tries to force anything. That's the biggest difference between Tatum and Brown to me is sometimes it feels like Tatum is forcing the shots. He wants to shoot the ball. He's not, like, actually reading the defense, where I feel like Brown is willing to just take what the defense gives him. He's going to make the right play, the right decision. I do want to pivot over to the Nuggets and talk about their young core as well, because if we want to talk about teams that real that weren't expected to be in this position, that have kind of overachieved, that have been ahead of schedule. If you would have asked, like, anybody to, like, put put the mortgage on – the Denver Nuggets getting to the Western Conference Finals. If you would have made two three-one deficits, two, two back to back, to do it once is difficult already. Just like not even the physical aspect of it, just like the mental toll to have like every single game going forward being an elimination game. To do it against the, the like the prohibitive favorites in the Western Conference in the Los Angeles Clippers, like I think we both like we both have to acknowledge that there has been a perception, and I've been guilty of this as well, where. We asked the question, are the Denver Nuggets like these paper tigers? Are they just a team that does really well in the regular season? They make some noise, and then when it gets to the playoffs, they just don't have it. I feel like after these playoffs, we have to put that to rest because maybe maybe it's not next season. Maybe it's not even the season after that that the Nuggets really make that ascension or may, maybe even make the finals because you do have to contend with still with LeBron, still with Andy Davis, the retooled Clippers, the retooled Warriors. It's not going to be an easy path back to the Western Conference Finals by any stretch of the imagination. But with this foundation, and then you throw in a young guy like for all his deficiencies, Michael Porter Jr., and then you have Monte Morris as well, who I think is probably – Love Morris. I think Monte Morris, at, if he sticks with Denver, if he stays with Denver, I think he's probably winning sixth man of the year at some point. I don't know if he'll I, – I think he should. I like that. I don't know if he'll Yo. get Place your bets right now. I don't know what the buy Monte Moore if he doesn't start because maybe maybe they want to do something where he starts because he, he's a starting caliber point guard. I don't think like he'll start though. I don't, they probably won't start him, but he is a starting caliber. That's the guy you want leading your second unit. You know? Yeah, that makes. He kind of reminds me of like 
I know I always do this comparison uh, to Shea Gilgis Alexander and how he was kind of Sean Livingston 2.0, but when I watch Morris, more so in like the cadence that he plays with, just the pace that he plays with, how he never really seems out of control. Never. It, it feels Livingston esque in that. It's just funny because he's a smallish guard, you know. Livingston is obviously like the Magic Johnson prototype with the being a big guard. Morris is like he's just shifty, man. He's just shifty and he's crafty. And he goes he had like some ridiculous splits in in the Western Conference Finals too. Yeah, he got like sixty percent from the field. Because that guy doesn't force bad shots, right? He's always he's got a nice floater game too. That nice in between game. That's the very Livingston thing. When you have that in between game, it kills the defense and opens up the rest of the floor. Going to like kind of that like Denver's big two in Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. I think those two in particular have gained a lot of respect for me. I've always liked their games, but there's always been those question marks surrounding both of them, particularly with Jamal Murray, because Murray also, he always kind of had that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde act. But 30% from three in the regular season. It was, I don't think it was as low as 30, but I think it was in like the 33, 34 range. It's like, cause he was always like, Oh, he'll be a great shooter. But then he was actually never a great shooter. Until this bubble. I mean, that was what was interesting about the layoff we had. It felt like some players came back stronger. Like, you could tell they'd worked on their game. And some players came back a lot weaker. It's like the yin and yang of Jamal Murray coming back as, like, a future MVP candidate and Pascal Siakam regressing to the point where he looks like an eighth man, where he lost all his game. Hadn't touched a ball, I guess, in three months. But, yeah, no, I mean, Jokic is the better player overall, probably the best passing big man of all time. But if Jamal Murray turns into a future scoring title winner, maybe not an MVP, but I could see him winning a scoring title. I mean, that's that's at least a finals run in there, I think, with those two. And you add Grant, if they can re-sign him, Man, I mean, the Western Conference is loaded, so it feels weird to project out. But they are going to be a tough out. And, you know, playing at altitude when things get back to normal, that Denver home court advantage is a real thing. And the overall feeling that I've had from – I've had it with with Boston, but particularly Denver just because of how meteoric this rise was from just being this team that – no one had, if we're being completely honest, no one had any legitimate respect for as a true contender, ourselves included. But this feels like the type of playoff run where even though they fell short, it's that sign of what's to come. It's that, it's that general feeling. Warriors, right? Yeah, it reminds me of the 2013 Warriors when they pushed the Spurs to six. They had no business pushing the Spurs to six at that point in time. They were like that, I think that was Curry's first all-star season. Clay wasn't an all-star yet. Draymond wasn't even the Spurs every game. Every game that series. Remember that? That was yeah. like they had to work to beat us. And that was a great Spurs team. A really good Spurs team. Just like this Lakers team that they just beat and the Clippers team they just beat. To me though, less I mean, it does feel a lot like the 2013 Warriors, but it actually felt 
so much, and maybe that's just this is just the bubble. It felt like an NCAA tournament Cinderella run, like that team yeah. that makes the Final Four from a mid-major. That's that's kind of the feeling I'm getting. Where though they lost, they already won their championship by beating the Clippers, by overcoming the Jazz, back to back three to one deficits, taking the Lakers. I mean, they they already won. They already won. Was PJ Dozier their sister Jean? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to read Jokic's quote on Murray in particular. Uh, Jokic said he was our leader. He was banged up. He's a dog. He's a fighter. He's a competitor. He's an amazing shooter. He played amazing. And that's the thing with Murray. It's there were like there were a couple times when he fell hard, and I was just like, Murray has no business being out on the floor right now, especially in Game Five. In Game yeah. Five, this man was on, like literally and figuratively like on his last legs, and he was still going out there, still competing till the very end. And that's like if if we're gonna have any takeaways looking long-term from this playoff run, at least among the teams that didn't make the finals. Jamal Murray is the guy that I'm really penciling in and really circling in terms of my biggest takeaways, just because the narrative and our perception of him has just completely flipped. It was always, as I mentioned, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing, what are you going to get? And although he still has room to grow, again, he's only 23 years old, just the fact that he was able to play at such a high level under duress in the first two rounds against the prohibitive favorites in two rounds in a row. You can't really teach that. You know what? I think his biggest asset is his mental toughness. He carries himself like a veteran, but he's still this, I don't, I don't know his age actually, but you know, he's 23, 23. And he carries himself like a assured 28 year old, 29 year old who's seen everything in the league. And I know there's been those features on him, how his dad forced him to take meditation classes and he'd have these crazy training sessions in the snow in Canada. And he's very, he's very into the whole winning the battle in your mind before you actually get on the floor type of player. And it, that's what you need to survive in the NBA and to be successful long-term is can you survive that 82-game grind and the playoffs – because there's going to be so many ups and downs, so much attention from the media, the expectations, and just the mental wear and tear you get from playing that many games, and you're going to have bad stretches, and can you push through and keep shooting and still have confidence? He's never going to suffer in that department. So if you have that foundation and you have his work ethic, like what there's stories about him being playing for the Canadian national team, and they literally had to take away his sneakers – because he kept playing after practices and games. And they're like, dude, you, you got to chill. You're, you're working too hard. That's exactly what you want to hear from your franchise player. I am curious as to what the Nuggets do in the offseason. Now, they're going to have two pretty big decisions to make. The first being Jeremy Grant. I believe I saw something yesterday where Jeremy Grant would be open uh, to re-signing with the team. But the other decision they have to make is – Paul Millsap, Paul Millsap, I believe his contract expired. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent. It's a question of do the Nuggets entertain bringing him back in the fold? Would he take a cheaper contract, a team-friendly contract? Because he's already made $150 million in his career, and I'm not trying to pocket watch. I'm just using that kind of as a frame of reference. He is on the older side of his career, 
And th those are the two decisions that I that are really going to define Denver's offseason. If they can get Millsap back on a team-friendly deal, I would personally take him and just have him embody that role as like a, a seventh or sixth man off the bench. Yeah, no, I think that if he could take a vet minimum, like you said, he's already made his money. He's got his generational wealth. Paved the way for MPJ. Yeah. Our favorite can, defender in the league. Yeah. You can have a viable role on this Nuggets team. I could see Millsap doing that. He seems like the type of guy who'd be open to that. And with the culture they're building in Denver, like where else is he going to want to go? Speaking of culture, Rory, we, we, we've, given, we've given the Celtics, we've given the Nuggets there. There's a little time in the sunshine. But speaking of culture, we got to talk about them boys in Miami. We got to talk about them boys in Los Angeles. First off, can we just acknowledge how, like, aggressively 80s of a finals matchup this is? Glitz and glamour, baby. Glitz and glamour. Fast like, cars, nice clothes. It's a battle of Grand Theft Auto Vice City versus Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Exactly. But before we get into this, can I just acknowledge, I feel so bad for the writers that are missing out on the opportunity to cover the finals in Miami Imagine how fun and that in Los Angeles and North. That ain't Cleveland, you know. Or Toronto. <laughs> no, like, no disrespect to Toronto. Some disrespect to Cleveland. <laughs> Major disrespect to Cleveland. I've been there. It's quite boring. Have you actually been there? I've been there. I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I did a cross-country trip. We went to Cleveland. Yeah, there ain't much to do. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that takes an hour, and then what else is there to do? You go on the river. That's all fine. Back, Cleveland's river lit on fire i think in 1920 because there was so much garbage in it it was so polluted that you could light it on fire fun facts of the day have you seen the the hastily made cleveland promotion video oh, yeah, of course that's, that's where i that's where i got yeah, my cleveland right. history. <laughs> see a river that catches on fire I know, I know we're gonna get into like the stylistic dissonance between these teams we're gonna get into man-to-man -man versus zone we're gonna get into personnel but before getting into that I just want to acknowledge that this is going to be so much fun. This is a series that I really just the, the inner basketball fan in me wants to go seven games. It, it would be like, I can imagine it there being a game. I, know, I, was, I was hoping for Utah Orlando. That was really my dream matchup. <laughs> oh, that's the mega hipster. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I think we could, we should start where, uh, where Rachel Nichols started in her questioning to Eric Spolstra. There's history here between LeBron James and the Miami Heat, of course. LeBron took his talent to South Beach for four years. They won two titles. I don't think Eric Spolster has J.J. Barea coming off the bench, but I digress. And before we started recording this podcast, I played you the audio clip of Pat Riley, and that audio clip was the one that played at the beginning of this podcast. And I don't know exactly where LeBron is in, in Eric Spolster's mind in Pat Riley's mind, but just kind of the way, like going back five years or six years at this point, going back to the way that things kind of ended in Miami with Eric, with Pat Riley saying, if you have the guts to stick around and LeBron goes to Cleveland, I don't know if it's appropriate to say that LeBron burned a bridge there, but just considering that loaded, how loaded that quote was, it, it appears that, you know, there's something there. And we were kind of joke like me and you were kind of joking that before, like after last night's win, 
Pat Riley and Eric Spolster, they got down in whatever makeshift office Eric Spolster has, grabbed a few brews and going like just two coaching minds going back and forth. And it's like, what are we going to do with this man that was in our organization for years? We know this man better than he knows himself. What are we going to do with him? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if LeBron burned a bridge as much as Pat Riley burns the bridge to LeBron. Uh, I know that in the book, The Soul of Basketball, which came out, I think, last year, the author conducted an interview with Pat Riley and talked about how things ended. Yeah. And I think in that, there's a story told about LeBron coming to Pat Riley and asking him to coach the team, fire Eric Spolstra. They got yeah, off they wanted Spolstra gone. They got off to that 9-8 and eight start, and there's this famous story where he says, don't you ever get the itch? And Pat Riley's like, the itch? What do you mean, what itch? And he's like, the itch to coach again. And he says, no, I'm over it. And basically rebuffs LeBron's request to essentially fire Eric Spolstra in the very beginning of that 2010-2011 season. And as LeBron's leaving the meeting, he starts scratching his leg like he has an itch. Just a nice poetic flourish to the meeting. And uh, I think Spolstra, for that reason, Pat Riley definitely clued him into that. And Spolstra is well aware of that fact. And LeBron famously bumped into Spolstra. Remember that YouTube like slow-mo clip of LeBron like hitting Eric Spolstra on the shoulder like early on in that uh, Heatles era? And then, yeah, Pat Riley, the famous press conference. I don't think they've spoken ever since he left. And LeBron's made some allusions to Pat Riley. You know, sort of like people thought, told me this was going to be the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Ha ha, I got the last laugh. So there is some real history here. It's like a good breakup, you know. And they're coming back together at a high school reunion or at some kind of function. And, you know, you're just waiting. Who's going to bring it up first? Or or are they going to address it at all? And are then they- you have – and then instead of LeBron James, you have Jimmy Butler, who is kind of like the antithesis of LeBron just from the way that he carries himself. Interesting. Who's like who's more of the embodied – because this is the thing about LeBron going to Miami in retrospect. It felt just, – just knowing what we know about heat culture, about the way that they like to carry themselves – how it's like this super business first mentality. And although they are in Miami, it's not really the glitz and glam. It's more the hard work, the dirty work. Just in retrospect, it feels weird that LeBron went to Miami. I think the way you have to look at it is for a guy who came straight out of high school and had never left Cleveland his entire life. This was essentially LeBron going to college. Isn't that what he said in that essay? I think that's the best way for us all to think about it was he's like, I haven't experienced anything except Cleveland. I'm a young guy in my twenties. I want to play with my friends. Let's go to Miami. But I don't think he was ever going to be there for the long term, for the long haul. And even though that heat culture that you're talking about, do you feel like that was as built in during the Heatles era? I feel like that almost became stronger once LeBron left and D Wade left and, Chris Bosh had his whole situation. Like they had to kind of build from the ground up and really lean into this heat culture mentality of like body fat percentage, 
your conditioning's got to be top notch. We're going to be, you know, a film driven team, analytics driven. Like we're not going to be star driven. I feel like that started in the aftermath of the Heatles era. So Pat Riley already, he kind of established the tone of that. Yeah, I feel like the foundation was always there because this is Pat Riley. He's the dog, yeah. and his influence is going to cover every nook and cranny of the franchise. But when you have a figure as big as LeBron, he kind of is the sun that everybody else rotates around. But once he left the organization, it felt as if Miami was able to kind of more firmly entrench their roots of what yeah. of the heat culture as we know it now. Yeah. Agreed. Even the D Wade Shaq teams didn't feel like these heat teams, you know, that was still more traditional. Going back to the, the Eric Spolstra, how LeBron wanted him gone and how he wanted Pat Riley to step in. The irony in that is that Eric Spolstra has been the best coach LeBron has ever had. Like, if you go down the long yeah. list of coaches that LeBron has ever had, none of them are really in Spolster's, at Spolster's level. Not even close. That being said. Like, respect to Frank Vogel, respect to Tyron Lue, but Eric Spolster is one of the best basketball minds on this earth right now. I feel like he became such a better coach after LeBron left, though. Because can you – LeBron teams always feel like the coach only has limited authority, right? Like, I don't think Eric Spolster was really able to lead his own philosophy when you have a player like LeBron there. You know, at I some level, think, LeBron I think they, is going to be his own general. I think towards the end of the Heatles, I think Spolstra started experimenting with having Bosch at the five and LeBron at the four. So, there was a little bit of it in there, yeah. but when you have, again, when you have LeBron. was brilliant with that team. Like, there were definitely he, – he had his coaching philosophies and imprints on the game. I'm just saying, like, LeBron is his own coach at the end of the day with every team he's on. Yeah, and it's kind of what I mentioned in terms of, like, when LeBron is the son of your organization, everything else just kind of seems to revolve around. The coach including the coach to a lesser extent. And we all know that LeBron has had his say in terms of who is going to be the coach, which if he has his say and he's putting his personal mark on who is the head coach of the team, then that's kind of telling us to what direction that's going to take. Not so much with the Lakers. I don't think Frank Vogel was LeBron's number one decision to take over as coach. But if we go back to Cleveland days in particular, how Tyron Lue took over midway through the 2015-16 season, Shout out David Blatt. Just Shout like, out David Blatt. I think he's coaching in Israel right now. Yeah. Maccabi. <laughs> one of the thoughts that I had, and it kind of felt like one of those old school video games, is that the Heat, to me, in regards to the Lakers, feel like a combination of everybody that the Lakers have beaten leading up to the finals. And you know how like there's those video games when it's like you final beat all boss. the bosses and then you get to the final boss and it's like, the combination of all the other bosses or it's like you're playing like a sports game and it's like you win the championship, but then you have to play a team that's comprised of like everybody that you so you're saying the Miami heat are Kirby. Ingested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, teams. Yes. The Miami heat are Kirby, because if we're going team by team, you look at 
the Blazers and to a lesser extent the Nuggets as well. You have fantastic guard play. Damian obviously Goran Dragic is in on the same level as Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, and Jamal Murray, but he's still a fantastic guard. Jimmy Butler as well. You look to the Rockets, they have shooters, arguably better shooters as well. You look to the Nuggets, there's that playmaking big. Nikola Jokic, Bam Adebayo, obvi- and obviously these comparisons aren't one to one. There's there are differences. Like Nikola Jokic isn't the same type of big man as Bam Adebayo. Tyson Chandler, Udonis Haslam, the old man, the OGs, <laughs> the OG. Yeah, so it, it kind of feels like there's elements of every team that the Lakers beat along the way. Is that enough to be actually beat the Lakers? Well, I mean, let's let's get into some of the this since we're on this like path, let's kind of get into some of the stylistic stuff. The first thing, as we mentioned, is the zone defense because that's kind of been Miami's not necessarily been their bread and butter, but it's been one of the main courses that's fueled their run to the finals. And we've seen in particularly in the Eastern Conference Finals, they're not going to employ it every single possession down the floor, but they kind of do sprinkle it in. They change up from man to zone. And it really depends on kind of where things are flowing in the scheme of the game. And the Lakers haven't really consistently faced any teams that have ran a zone defense out. I know that Denver, they kind of played with it a little bit, but Nikola Jokic isn't Bam Adebayo on defense. The the Nuggets didn't have a Jay Crowder or a Jimmy Butler or an Andre Iguodala type on defense. The best probably player that they had defensive-wise was Jeremy Grant, who would probably be maybe the third or fourth best defender on Miami. And that's not even uh, a disc- that's not even kind of throwing shade at Jeremy Grant. That's just how good Miami's defenders are and how well they play in that zone scheme. So I think that's going to be the biggest curiosity I have in regards to this series. How often does Miami go to that zone? If the zone is successful, do they kind of milk it or do they just keep going back and forth between zone and man? And obviously, how do the Lakers respond to it? Yeah, because the Lakers, the biggest question is, can they space the floor, right? And if you play the zone and you kind of tempt them into shooting from the perimeter, ask them to beat you from the perimeter, that's a good strategy against this Lakers team, though. I know KCP has improved his three-point shooting. I know playoff Rondo is in full effect right now. What is he shooting? Like 44% on two attempts or something ridiculous? Or three attempts? 44% from three in the playoffs. Especially, though, when the Lakers are playing these lineups with, like, JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard and Anthony Davis and LeBron. So you basically have – I mean, I know ADs can shoot a little bit, but – those, it's going to be really tough to space the floor if you're the Lakers. And if they go zone, it's going to get all muddled. And that's kind of will play into Miami's strengths. So I think the zone defense is sort of a great strategy for Miami to employ. You don't want to use it all the time because of zone defense. There's a reason they don't play it all the time. It's because they're bra- uh, zone defense has plenty of weaknesses, and once you penetrate – and you get into that mid-range area and you get people running along the baseline, it's really easy to get buckets and break it down. So you don't want to do it too much. But that this Lakers team, that's been the question the whole year is, can the others beat you besides AD and LeBron? Do they have the shooting to make it happen? And his own defense will kind of leverage 
that weakness against them, I think. And switching over to kind of the Lakers side of things, I think in terms of what you were alluding to, how if you can get someone in the middle, kind of at that free throw area, I think if they can get the ball to Anthony Davis in the zone and then just have him pass from the elbows, either pass from the either pass from the elbows or he's been so sensational in the mid range game. There are options there. There are ways to beat the zone, and obviously, like one of the one of the biggest ways to exploit the zone is, especially if you're someone like LeBron, is if if the defense is scrambling, just there's a there's a path to just driving to the rim, and obviously, and then that opens everything up because everybody else is kind of scrambling. You don't really have a man to attach to. So it's like, who exactly am I going to cover at this point in time? What area am I guarding? But I'm just, I'm putting AD at the five. Like why muddy the waters with Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee, especially if they're playing a zone. So do you think that the Lakers end up starting either Dwight or JaVale? Cause I think if they're going to start either of them, they're starting Dwight, but it, it kind of goes back to that, that idea that we were talking about, I think it was in the Houston series where if you're the better team, if you're with the Lakers being the number one seed and the Miami Heat being the number five seed in the East, if you're the better team, why kind of tip your hand and play, not necessarily play down, but why would you change your game plan for a team that's quote unquote inferior to you, at least on paper? Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said for that, but I mean, I'm, I've always wanted AD to be at the five. That's always been my corner. Uh, I could see Frank Vogel, though, saying, like, you know, we're going to dictate the terms. We don't want Miami dictating the terms to us, so we're going to start at least with Dwight or JaVale. I just think what you just laid out, LeBron driving to the rim, getting to the hoop, having space to work with, that'll be a lot easier with AD at the five. Okay, because if it's AD and Dwight or JaVale – that's just – it's a lot of real estate being taken up. And the thing is, we got to – like, whenever the Lakers throw Anthony Davis at the five, there's always – the announcers are always saying, oh, the Lakers are going small. They're not going small. Anthony Davis, small. Is damn near, Anthony Davis is damn near seven feet tall. LeBron is, like, 6'9". And then – 6'9", like, he's playing like Shaq right now. And then who would who else would you compliment on the floor? Like you have if you have like Kuzma, Danny Green, and KCP on the floor, the smallest dude on the floor is like six six. They're not going small. They're just like they're running a, a you have a they're small running guy, a big lineup. Like Rondo. What is Rondo's wingspan? Right? Seven two. Yeah. <laughs> Rondo's in an octopus, bro. So yeah, the Lakers have a good length. I man, it's such a good matchup. When you look at who's going to be guarding who. I'm just so, like, I, I just know that Eric Spolstra has, like, he like he had LeBron for four years. I feel like he's, like, he hasn't had that opportunity to go against him in the playoffs. Like, when How do you, when it was that Dwayne Wade-led team, they never met in the playoffs. Like, when it was that Miami Heat team that faced Philly in the first round, I believe, last year, two years ago, they didn't meet in the playoffs. I just feel like Eric Spolstra has, like, there was like that scene. There was the scene in Creed where they were preparing for like the big fight, and Rocky's character is like they're watching film, and Rocky's character is like, I think he's got something up his sleeve for you. That's the overwhelming feeling that I have with Spolster. Oh. It's just oh, like yeah. dude, he has something up his sleeve, and like you know, like whenever reporters ask him, whether it be like the the sideline interviews or post game, he's never giving anything away. 
how do you think they're going to scheme LeBron on the defensive end? I feel like I, I assume they're going to send just waves at LeBron. So it's going to be Iguodala. It's going to be Crowder. It's going to be Butler. Maybe Bam every now and then if they want to switch. Like, I just feel like they have so many guys they can throw at LeBron and just kind of wear him down over the course of a series. Yeah, we also got to gotta acknowledge that like, there's no real stopping LeBron. It's there's no stopping LeBron, but I think – the Warriors kind of showed the blueprint is it's more just sending bodies, sending waves at him. Yeah, if or we him to use his energy when he doesn't want to. So I know I made that allusion to like all the other teams that like the Heat are kind of like a composition of all the other teams that the Lakers have played up to this point. But if you look at the Blazers, the Rockets, and the Nuggets, again going back to this point on defense, none of those teams have anyone that's at the caliber of a Bam, of a Jimmy Butler, of a Crowder, of an Iguodala on defense. We talk about the depth that Miami has on offense, their dearth of weapons, how in game six it was Iguodala. Duncan Robinson, there might be, there might be a Duncan Robinson game in the finals. You have the Tyler Hero with the 37 points off the bench. No fear. For all the credit that we give to that offense, Denver has – or not Denver – Miami has so many different weapons that they can throw at the Lakers on the defensive end of the floor. And the one big difference between all the teams that the Lakers have played in the playoffs and this Miami team is paint protection. You look at the Blazers that had Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside. Hassan Whiteside gets blocks. Not necessarily an actually good defender. If you That's because really he literally just chased uh, blocks. Yeah. You said it, not me. But then Yusuf Nurkic, he can protect the paint, but not to the same degree as Bam Adebayo because Bam Adebayo, while he doesn't have, while Bam Adebayo doesn't have the same size as Yusuf Nurkic, he makes it up. He makes up for it with athleticism and fantastic defensive intelligence. The Rockets sure as hell didn't have anyone that could protect the paint, if, unless you count PJ Tucker in that. The Nuggets. Jokic can't jump over. One dollar bill, according to Jeff Van Gunny. And the you know, uh, Mason Plumley is a not Bam Adebayo. And I know you just love you some Mason Plumley. What are you doing? <laughs> Still catching strays a couple podcasts later, but that's kind of the biggest thing that gives Miami an advantage compared to every other team that the Lakers have played in the playoffs. If the Lakers were going to have any real trouble with any team in the playoffs before getting to the finals. It was going to be with the Clippers just because the Clippers had an array of wing defenders that they could throw at the Lakers. But, and this isn't to say that the, the heat or like, or the Lakers aren't prepared at all. They're going to be watching film. They know the personnel. They've probably been watching the games unfold in the Eastern conference. They know who they are up against and they know who Miami has. It's just that you, Compared to every team that the Lakers have faced on this road, the Miami Heat are just so stylistically different, both in terms of scheme and both in terms of the actual guys that they have on the floor. Like, there was no team that had a Duncan Robinson type. There was no team, there was sure as hell no team that had a Jimmy Butler type, that had a Tyler Hero type, that had a Bam Adebayo type. So that's why, just from that angle, why I'm so intrigued in this finals matchup. Like I know Denver and Miami would have been fun just because you got Bam and 
Jokic as these playmaking bigs. You have these fun guards. But it feels like these guys are just so – they're kind of different. Like th- this, there's this stylistic juxtaposition between Los Angeles and Miami that makes for such an intriguing finals matchup. Yeah. It's really interesting because usually finals matchups, you just pick like, all right, who has the best top-level talent? They're probably going to win the series. And the Lakers, certainly, they have the number one and number two players in this. But it almost feels like 2013-2014 Spurs that went up against those Heat teams where they didn't have the top-level talent that Miami did. But that culture and that philosophy they had was executed to such a precise degree that they were able to overcome that gap. And it feels like this Miami team, which is funny that it switched, (laughs) you know, six years later. Yeah. Is like, that's sort of their strength. It's, you know, 2015 Warriors strength in numbers kind of deal right now. Yeah, and Bam has the potential to be like maybe that Kawhi Leonard X factor or Jimmy Butler, you know, and Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero. Like they just have so, Dragic. Like, is he going to turn into Manu in the 2013 2014 Spurs teams? Like, it, that's a team that can beat someone with the top level talent of AD. And LeBron, which I don't want to say is Shaq Kobe, but it's in the ballpark of Shaq Kobe, right? As yeah. a bunch. I'll definitely say I was too young to actually watch Shaq and Kobe in turn, not necessarily the highlights, because I've seen the highlights, but in terms of watching that tandem unfold over like a full forty-eight minutes. But just in watching, like from the highlights, and then watching AD and LeBron operate in real time, that's definitely the feeling that I that kind of gets evoked. Well, what's funny about Shaq, Kobe, they didn't run pick and roll, right? So it was basically my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. AD and LeBron, it's like they're actually working together because it's pick and rolls. It's LeBron just finding AD for alley-oops and just – so it actually is almost better in that sense. But, you know, it feels weird to say they're better than Shaq, Kobe in the first year. But that is the level – I mean, Kobe in his first year was like, what, 17? Yeah, we're well, talking about the three P year. Yeah, in the three two thousand when he's like twenty two, twenty four. I don't know, somewhere in there. Going right? back to the the twenty thirteen twenty fourteen Spurs comparison, if you look at the top line talent on both of these teams for Miami, it would be Jimmy and Bam, and then on for LA, it would be LeBron and AD. It's Los Angeles far and away that has that advantage, and sometimes it comes down to a matter of fact of having the best players on the floor, although. Almost every basketball game comes down to that. But I think a comparison that might even be a little more apt than the 2013-2014 Spurs is the 2004 Detroit Pistons. because Oh, he taking it there. Because I'm not going to say that the Miami Heat have the defense of the the 2004 Detroit Pistons. I know that there was hand checking going on, but the games were finishing like 70 points. Yeah. Yeah, but so when you look at – like kind of like the three through seven and I know basketball is so much more complex than just looking at names on paper but if you want to compare like the three through seven for Miami so that would be Dragic, Robinson, Crowder, Iguodala, Hero that's not even that's three, three through eight with the potential of maybe 
Maybe they throw in Nunn because Nunn has been Nunn's been bad on defense. Kelly Olynyk's in the mix as well, but it's pretty much Solomon those. Hill was getting time for whatever reason. Oh, Solomon Solomon Hill back from the dead. Back from the dead. Solomon Hill versus Anthony Davis is the real narrative we need to focus on because if you remember, they were teammates back in New Orleans. That's the real matchup we got. Actually, were they? I think they were. Oh, yeah. You know the biggest. That's the real narrative we got to focus on. If we're going to go down this tangent, just real quick, the biggest winner out of this is John Calipari. He's got <laughs> Hero. He's got Bam. He's got Anthony Davis. Them Kentucky boys. I mean, Rondo went to Kentucky, not with Calipari. But, you know, this is great for the Calipari brand. His recruiting is great like, for the recruiting brand. Check me out. Whenever the, uh, whenever the recruiting season happens, just show that it's – they just watch the finals. That's it. And dude, you, get, like, some, you get some underpaid intern to, like, Photoshop jerseys onto these guys in real time. Bro, Bam was so much more limited at Kentucky. And I know Calipari is notorious for, like, actually not allowing his top-level talent to show their whole talent because he literally is like, you have one job, only do that. It's like when Carl Anthony Towns started shooting threes, it's like, we didn't see that at Kentucky. <laughs> If so, then looking at the Lakers, and it's funny because, you know, the 2004 Pistons played the Lakers, although, you know. Exactly. But if you're looking at the Lakers kind of three through seven, three through eight guys, you go Rondo, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Alex Caruso, Oof. Danny Green, Oof. Markeith Morris, Oof. White Howard, JaVale McGee. And again, it's it's not as simple as just saying like, oh, our like we have more depth, our like three through seven or three through eight guys, depending on how you look at it, is better. But it and if you're gonna make that kind of 2014 Spurs comparison, and then we also gotta acknowledge that these are two in my mind, these are two like of those capital T teams that I like, but it's more so with Miami. Because although you have basically they've added Hero and Robinson and Butler in the mix, there was already that pre and Crowder as well. And Iguodala, there was that pre-existing core of Dragic of Bam and Spo. I know that Le- like LeBron was on the Lakers last year, but it was with a different coach and an entirely different. There was a lot of dysfunction. Let's not forget. There was a lot of dysfunction with the Lakers last year. You had Magic Johnson basically saying, I right, I'm a head out in the middle of the season, but just in the way that the heat, are this super cohesive unit. And that's not to say the Lakers aren't a super cohesive unit. It's just, I get that feeling more so with Miami, although they've based like this team hasn't even been together that long. Like they've added a lot of different, like new characters into the mix. It just feels like because of the foundation that was set, I know we kind of damn near appropriated heat culture at this point, but it just feels like with the foundation that was set with Spolstra and Riley and Dragic and Adebayo, and then you add all these guys into the mix, it feels like they are the more – they have more of a chemistry. And, they, again, I don't want to, like, undermine the Lakers' oh, chemistry. They definitely have more chemistry. They definitely have a better team. Uh, but can that beat AD and LeBron? Can that really beat AD That's the big question because it's two of the best five Jimmy, players in the world. Jimmy was not that aggressive against Boston. He really didn't take – I mean – he was like the fifth leading scorer, fourth leading scorer. On the, it was like Dragon, Bam. I mean, Hero was scoring more than Jimmy. Like, I'm going to be really interested to see what Jimmy's offensive approach is in this series because I guess KCP is going to be guarding him. 
Uh, I feel like he could work KCP. LeBron, he doesn't guard the best player unless it's the fourth quarter, like we saw with Jamal Murray. He could definitely neutralize Jimmy in that sense. Um, so I think Jimmy's got to have some big games, some really big games for them to win the series. Because as great as it is, like having all these pieces, like Duncan Robinson, Hero, when it's the finals, you need your best players to show up. You really, really do. Otherwise, it's just not going to get it done. Yeah, that's why it's the the mantra, the kind of the school of thought is if you're kind of deciding between which two teams are going to win and they're kind of equally matched, it's you kind of just go with the team that has the best player. Yeah, and I know that that kind of wasn't the case with. Miami Boston you can argue that Tatum or even Brown was kind of the best player on the floor most like Tatum but yeah when it especially when it comes to the finals that's when you really shorten up the rotation and it's going to be like your number one and your number two guys and it is that question of is that tandem of LeBron and AD and you know like this isn't going to be a game like a scenario where like they lost the first game to the Blazers and they lost the first game to the Rockets. Like they are going to be locked in from the jump. They're, they're going hard right away. They're going to be coming from for the throat of Miami from the jump. So it's that, and that, that's the thing with Butler too. Is it's it's been a point that's made. It's like Butler likes to get everyone else involved. He likes to get into the flow of the offense, and then in the fourth quarter, that's when he turns it on. But that's kind of led to a bad habit with Miami where they'll be down at the beginning of the first first, first quarters in some of these games. And yeah. that's not to say that they can't come back. This is a team that's proven that they can consistently come back, especially when they turn it on in the fourth quarter. It's just a matter of like, cause I think in the, in game six, they they scored like 35 points in the last nine minutes. That's insane. But even with that in their pocket, even with that, kind of irrational confidence that they can come back from anything. It actually, that's not even irrational confidence. That's just like a, a championship confidence. Even and, with that mindset that you can come back, I don't think this is a series where you can necessarily a- afford to do so. No. Just because the strength of Anthony Davis and LeBron James is so much stronger than any tandem that they faced along the way. Yeah. And, I mean, this feels weird to say because, like, of course, rhythm is important for every team. But in the finals, the games are often very times erratic. People are, you know, have butterflies in their stomach. It's really hard to establish a rhythm, especially when you're getting schemed after every game and making these huge adjustments. And Miami, to me, feels like a team that's really reliant on getting into a good rhythm with all their guys and ball movement. Hero feeling good. Duncan Robinson getting confidence. Stradich getting to the line, doing his crafty stuff. If they can't establish that rhythm and the, what Jimmy Butler is waiting for, then it's a lot harder for them to get offense versus the Lakers who, out of thin air, can create offense with LeBron and AD. Out of thin air, whether that's going to the free throw line or just hitting those mid-range shots where there's literally zero rhythm to their offense, but LeBron's just going <laughs> to pound the ball into the floor and then hit a fadeaway jumper over you. And this is where Jimmy being aggressive early yes. would really come into the mix because as you – mentioned it's wait for the game to come to you in the finals not only see. that like this is going to be the first time in the finals i know it's going to be the first time in the finals for a lot of guys but at least jimmy has been one of the few guys who have made somewhat deep playoff runs or has consistent experience in the postseason 
this is going to like, this is going to be hero's first time. This is going to be Robinson's first time. This is going to be Bam's first time. Yeah. I know that on the flip side of things, this is going to be Anthony Davis, Kyle Kuzma, Alex Caruso. It's going to be their first times as well. Uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope, but Deadly. you have <laughs> Jared Dudley, but the big difference is that you have LeBron James, who's been to the finals nine times in the last 10 years. Just look at that for a sec, too. Like, everyone who's like, yo, he only did that because the East was weak as hell. My man went through the West, and I know, you know, maybe you're going to call it the Weast this time because of the craziness of this year. <laughs> but, like, nine out of ten years is insane. Insane. I don't think we ever see this again. I really don't. What LeBron's doing, like, what does Kevin O'Connor always tweet? Don't take LeBron James for granted. Don't take LeBron for granted. No matter what you think of him, nine out of ten years, that's bananas. RIP to the 3-6 Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. Yeah, it's, it's honestly insane. Like, I was watching. Dude, our whole lives. Like, we're young. Like, our whole lives. Yeah in the finals and 2007 where was i in 2007 you were young as hell i was in fifth grade yeah i was like the third or fourth grade depending on like what time but yeah it's it's crazy to imagine that there is gonna come it's like i was when we were talking about jamal murray nicole Jokic, Jalen brown jason tatum the thought that i had in the back of my head and it was a weird one was there's going to be a time when they're playing and they're in their primes and there's going to be no LeBron. Like they're going to be like 28 years old, 29, 30, and there's no longer going to be that LeBron gauntlet that they have to go through. And it's going to be Lou Dort's league, bro. <laughs> Shout out Arizona state. All, all the sun Shout out Devils, Canada. All this, all the sun devils are going to, all the Canadians are going to take over. Great, great time for Canada. You beating COVID and you had Lou Dort and Jamal Murray. Do we have a Canadian in this finals? Uh, I don't think we so. Have a, we have a Nigerian. Shout out to the Bam Adebayo, Edris. Ah, Edris Bam Adebayo. Yeah. Wow, Iguodala, Nigerian too. Someone, someone tweeted um, when the Heat when the Heat beat the Bucks. Someone was like, will the real Nigerian please stand up and just throw in all the shade at Giannis? Wow. <laughs> all the shade. But, yeah, there, it, it's going to be weird to think that there is a time when, like, LeBron is no longer going to have his imprint on the league. So, yeah, it is that general idea that you don't know how many more times you're going to see this. Appreciate yeah, it. Like, don't take it for granted. And don't hate. Just – Hey, it's gonna happen. Hate sometimes, like you know. But come on, who's the the talking head that always hates? On, is it Skip that always hates on LeBron? Oh yeah, Skip. That's that's the number one. That's his. Yeah. Every time I hear LeBron, I just I hear it in Stephen A. Smith's voice, LeBron. <laughs> I just hear LeBron James. LeBron James. I, I know we always kind of say that when we have a generational talent it's will never like there you know there always is kind of that loose possibility that we see something like this again because just when you think you've seen Bro, all the Jordan staring you in the face <laughs> so my the man running back 
next like, LeBron's probably like the fifth grade right now, not even playing basketball. He's probably playing like soccer and like Phil. Yeah. Water polo. <laughs> Did you see that article that someone said Jokic plays basketball yeah. water polo player? Which like Serbia is like very serious about water polo, so that makes sense. But pivoting back to this series. The one question that I've been kind of going back and forth on is who would be the X factors for both of these teams? And I haven't really been able to pinpoint a certain player because I just feel like for both teams, it's just like three guys. It's not just one player. It's like, how do X, Y, and Z play? It's not just a matter of how does player X play? I think for Miami in particular, if you had to nail it down to one player, I would go with Jay Crowder. Ooh. Just for the sole reason that his three point shooting was so yeah, and like it and like he really regressed to the mean like after game two. Hard, hard, hard regression. <laughs> it was like, what, what is it called? Like the law of large numbers. Yeah, you have a large enough sample size, and things just come crashing back down to the mean. So that's kind of who I'm veering for, veering towards with my expector. I kind of just want to say Tyler Hero, just because it's fun to say Tyler Hero. Like, like, I could imagine a scenario where Tyler Hero just drives into the chest of Anthony Davis and, like, misses a layup, like, so, like super bad, but you're really impressed that he had the confidence to do it. Tyler, it just feels weird to be like, yeah, we need this 20-year-old to show up in the finals, you know? It's just like... Someone yeah. tweeted that if, that if, and now it's reality, but someone tweeted that if the Heat make the finals, there's a 100% chance that Tyler Hero is going to call Alex Caruso a bitch-ass white boy. <laughs> Hundred percent. Yo, oh my god, that's true. That is. But on the Lakers side, I feel like I'm like when it comes to the Lakers, I'm always tempted to just be like, yeah, Kyle Kuzma is gonna be the X factor. It might be Dwight, honestly. I think it's gonna be Rondo. If Rondo keeps Mm. shooting like this, that kind of breaks your defense, breaks your zone. If that's what you're running as Miami, like Rondo, we've already seen what he can do with AD, and now that he's like turned into the best shooting phase of his career. I really think if playoff Rondo is in full effect, that might break Miami's defense. I will say the one thing, if you're Miami, if Rondo's taking threes, you kind of just live with that. Because it's never it's never really those dude. But it's never really those three pointers when it's like he's taking it off the bounce. It's just like he grabs the ball, he's surveying the floor, he's looking around, he's like, ah shit, I'll take a three. And then he nails it. So it's like he's had some no hesitation threes. He looks confident. He, I remember he's in a couple mid-range shots, too. I will give him no, that. No, I agree. If you're Miami, that's how you scheme. But I'm just saying. I can imagine. The legend of playoff Rondo is a real thing, dude. It's a real thing. I can imagine Jimmy just looking him dead in the eye and be like, shit. National TV Rondo. Wait, when that Bulls situation what? happened, wasn't he on Jimmy Butler? I was just about to say, Rondo and Butler were on the TNT Bulls. They were both on the TNT Bulls. No, but remember when D Wade was calling out the Bulls young guys, and then Rondo was just like, "That's BS. These guys are trying their hardest." Do you not remember this drama? I remember the. the I don't remember this particular one. I'm pretty sure Rondo came to the defense of Jimmy Butler, or maybe he was against Jimmy Butler. I I gotta revisit this. It was something, but Butler and Rondo were both on the TNT Bulls. Yep, that's the thing, though. So, yeah, so I say Rondo is my X factor for the Lakers and the concept of rhythm for the Miami Heat's offense. 
which is kind of a cop-out answer, but I just feel like they really rely on establishing that rhythm and like having the game come to them getting into a flow. And if the Lakers can disrupt that, it's going to be really tough because Miami naturally is not a team where it's just like, all right, Jimmy, just create shots for us every time down the floor. Though he can do that, I don't know. I don't know if that's their path to victory Four games. You know, I don't know. If Dwight gets – if Dwight starts and he gets put on to BAM, because I, I assume that they would – if they're going to start Dwight or JaVale, I would go Dwight just because I can't imagine JaVale – <laughs> trying to I, I trying to guard Bam, but if if that's the matchup, I am curious as to how Bam in particular attacks that because we saw at the end of Game Six how there was like three straight possessions where Bam didn't pass the ball. He like he took the ball off the floor. He was like he saw Tice and was like I'm about to sun this man. Like he heard the the anonymous scout who was saying that the Tice at a bio matchup was a wash, and he's like Nah, I gotta put this I gotta put this <laughs> man in the wash real quick. I gotta take this man to school. Uh, and obviously like like Tice and Howard are two different types of dudes. And we saw how in the Western conference finals, Ty- or Howard kind of tried to punk Jokic, although it didn't really work. And I do kind of wonder if Howard would try to do that with Bam as well. I think it's more interesting though, to look at crunch time. Cause I don't think Dwight Howard's going to be playing crunch time. Right. Yeah. So I had in my notes, I have Anthony the Davis is the real question. Yeah, in my notes, I have, like, there's the starting lineup as well as the finishing lineup. So, for the starting lineup, I would imagine it goes something like Drogic, Butler, Robinson, Crowder, Adebayo for Miami. For the Lakers, LeBron, KCP, Green, Davis, Howard. But when you get to that finishing lineup, I think that both teams can kind of do some funky stuff depending on how they want to go. For Miami, the, the, the solidified three, the three that are going to be there no matter what, are Dragic, Butler, and Adebayo. But then after that, you could either go with, I think you pick one of Robinson or Hero, and then I think you pick one of Crowder and Iguodala for those like last two spots. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the Lakers, their solidified three in those crunch time minutes would be Rondo, LeBron, and AD. And then in that same vein, I think you kind of pick... I think KCP pick... is probably in crunch time. I think KCP is probably in crunch time too, but it really, I think it would depend more so on the flow of the game. I wouldn't really consider him like a lock for that crunch time spot. And in terms of those last two spots, it's some combination of KCP, uh, Caruso, Green, and Kuzma. I think those are kind of the players that they would consider in those crunch time lineups. I think it really is going to depend on the flow of the game. If you're going to pick any of those, I think you would be more inclined to go with KCP and Kuzma. I would take kind of Kuzma over Green, although that's kind of – really dependent on whether Kuzma's going like 0 for 6 from the field. <laughs> but it was interesting, though, because if I remember right, in Game 5, Caruso didn't get that much play in crunch time, although I know that that Caruso-LeBron tandem is really solid, especially in the defensive end. Yeah, Caruso's been great on defense. Um, but it sort of feels like you get what Caruso brings with Rondo and more when you just put Rondo on the floor and then add another shooter around that yeah because the thing with Caruso and Rondo and I don't want to say they're kind of redundant because I think Caruso rings a little more defensively than Rondo especially at this point in career that's not to say Rondo but you can drive on defense with Rondo yeah and the thing with Caruso and I know that there was I think it was what game four where Caruso like had the dunk and he had the three and he had like the 
the finger roll when he was getting the oh it's Larry Bird or it's Michael Jordan like when he like that game I think that was that was game two actually that was when AD hit the yeah the one thing with Caruso is that I don't want to call him an offensive liability but there are nights when he's just not knocking down threes he's not a knockdown shooter in the same way that KCP even to a lesser extent Danny Green are knockdown shooters and the Heat could legitimately. Green, I don't know if he's a knockdown shooter anymore. Well, more. Well, I think more so than I think, relatively speaking, to Caruso. What's the meme with his jersey? It's like how many more missed open <laughs> shots? Oh, yeah, they were man. NBA, the first like the first time in the bubble, like the first game in the bubble, that Lakers Clippers game, they were going in with that jersey. With that, yeah, he looks man. He looks all. He looks straight washed. Honestly, he had a little bit of a bounce back, but. But yeah, I I do wonder in regards to Caruso. they are swish. Bring him off the bench. Let's go. Finals before. <laughs> he he has a he's got finals experience, Rory. Bro, maybe, maybe me, they bring it in for maybe leaders does not want to cook this Heat team that he had an edible panic attack on. The team <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna get back at you guys. He's getting the ring no matter what. Unless he, unless he goes the Anderson Varejao route in 2016 and just ultimately declines if, like, the Lakers uh, would hypothetically lose. I don't think – I think Dion wants a ring either way. <laughs> but, I'll yeah, I think the, the crunch time question, it's going to be – do Bam and AD ultimately neutralize each other? Like, do they almost cancel each other out? Because they have nah, nah. I, th- I think AD is – like, no disrespect to Bam, but I think AD is just he, – he's a top five player in the league. Top like, I agree, but don't you think Bam is almost like – if you were going to create someone in a lab to stop AD, you'd create a Bam? I think that's a fair point. You know? I mean, just create it in the same Kentucky lab. Because <laughs> kind of going back to the point about all the players or all the teams that the Lakers have played up to this point and getting to the finals – AD hasn't really had someone that you could consider. And I know we kind of use that term, like the the, the insert player stopper. Like I know we kind of throw that term around, but in terms of someone who could legitimately have a fight, like in terms of someone that could legitimately hold AD under 20 points, it wouldn't be so much of a surprise. The Lakers haven't faced anyone like that leading up to this point. Jokic sure as hell wasn't doing that. The combination of, Nurkic and Whiteside wasn't doing that. The Rockets sure as hell wasn't doing that. It, but if you put Bam on AD, there's a reality. There are realistic scenarios where Bam holds him to a poor shooting night or holds him hypothetically under 25, 20 points, depending on how well he is able to lock him up. That being said, I just I keep want, I just really want to drive home this point so no one uses my words against me. AD is like a top six player in the game. Oh, I, when, the, I, I, when the talent level is that high. I just feel like you find ways to, like, there's, like, a one-off, like, going back to, like, Steph in the 2015 finals when Delhi like, locked him up in game two, but the rest of the series he averaged, like, 27 points. And this this isn't to say that... Sometimes you only need one game to neutralize AD, right? Just one bad game can swing the entire series. No no one, I really hope no one splices this together and thinks I'm comparing them at a bio. To Matthew Delavadova, <laughs> please, please, please don't have that be the one takeaway from this Bam, podcast. Bam can at least make AD work on both ends of the floor, on both ends of the floor, and 
you know, AD, like you said, he's a top five player, I think, top six player. He's going to get his points. He's going to get his buckets. But is he going to have to work to the degree that, you know, he suffers on maybe the other end of the floor? And the thing that we haven't even brought up yet is when we get to the crunch time minutes, if Anthony Davis is your five and Bam Adebayo is your five and Bam Adebayo is at the top of the key with the ball in his hand looking to create, what's the thing we like to say with Miami? Death by a million back cuts. And the dribble handoffs, right? Duncan Robinson. Yeah. That du- dude, that dribble handoff with Duncan Robinson and Bam Adebayo, they run that to perfection. You know it's what's crazy? Just quickly, Duncan Robinson is like shooting before he even touches the ball. It's insane. I've never seen anything like that. Where he's like up in the air, like it's all in one motion. It's less than a second. It's like legitimately to get the ball to rise up and shoot, it's less than a second. And like people, like Duncan Robinson's like, what, 6'8? Six, 6'7? Eight? Six, like he's a big dude, so he can shoot over most people, anyways. It's. That is a nightmare to defend. And the Lakers' communication, they have a great defense, but their communication is going to have to be top-notch. And when you, you have people like JaVale McGee or Kyle Kuzma out there, not to send shots, but, like, I don't know if they're capable of defending on that level with the communication and, like, the quick decisions you have to make. I'm putting this on wax right now. Kyle Kuzma is going to fall for at least two Duncan Robinson pump fakes. I see one really if they, switched, if they get switched on to each other. I or, think Tyler Hero might cook Kuzma. Like, it'll be bad. It'll be really bad. But yeah, I'm, in terms of the kind of the back cutting element of it, I'm just curious as to if you, have, if you have Bam and he's able to take AD away from the floor. And we kind of saw this in the Denver series too, where you had Nuggets at the top or Jokic at the top of the key taking AD away from the paint and just kind of going by the death by a million back cuts, especially because that's Miami's bread and butter. I'm curious if that's a way for them to generate points consistently in crunch time, if that's a well that they go to instead of just straight up isolation. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good alternative. And the ISO sometimes has diminishing returns, honestly, especially when you like over a seven game series, is that going to work? Four times out of seven. Yeah. I also another point that I want to bring up is that I kind of treat these two teams as if they've never played each other, because the Heat and the Lakers played each other in the regular season, but those teams, as constructed, were so different. So like different. like Dragic was still coming off the bench. Avery Bradley was still playing. Obviously, he opted out. Caruso only played about fifteen minutes in those games. I think it was 10 in the first and 18 in the second. Iguodala and Crowder were still in Miami. Nunn and Leonard were still starting, and the Lakers didn't have Morris yet. So not entirely different teams, but different enough to where it's like these are two different teams playing against each other. Yeah, it's really funny to hear people bring up regular season matchups because to me that almost feels like bringing up last year. You know, it's just like – this is not the same. I mean, it's almost been a year at this point. Yeah, it's not the same season. We're having an NBA Finals in October, guys. Like, <laughs> Embrace the weird. This ain't the, this ain't the same. I think we've kind of touched on a lot of the details. It's prediction time. Oh, man. I've thought about this series exclusively over the last 24 hours, however long since – 
Miami's one. And I'm, I can't pick a direction to veer in. Like, I think the direction I'm going to pick is, like, is going to come right now. I know. That, I'm going to let that go over to you, though. Where, okay. where are you? I think I'm going – I'm going to go Lakers in seven because as much as I love this Miami team, as much as I love their offensive philosophy, it's everything I want out of a basketball team, and I am getting 2014-2013 Spurs vibes. I just think this LeBron-AD pairing is not only good, it's historic. And LeBron smelling this fourth ring, he's going to want this so badly. So badly. I don't see him letting it slip through his fingers. But I see Miami pushing them all the way to seven because I do think Bam will be able to neutralize AD at least one game this series and potentially play him to a draw the entire series, more or less. And uh, But when you have AD and LeBron versus Jimmy Butler, Gordon Dragic, or Tyler Hero, Duncan Rupp, I mean, Miami's already won to a degree. They've already won their championship. I don't think they look at it like that, though. I, they definitely don't look at it, but that's like, let's be honest, no one expected this. No one expected this. I'm going to go Lakers in seven. My mind is telling me Lakers. My heart is telling me Miami. Yep. It's Tito Spo. It's Tito Eric Spo. Yeah, come on, bro. You can't go against Spo. So, like, my, like my mind is telling me Lakers in six. In six? My heart is telling me Heat in six. Why six? You think I, you don't think seven? This guy's seven. I don't, right I don't, now I don't know. We just that's just kind of like the where I'm at. I can't really give you a reason as to why I think it'll be six games, bro. This, this is, is what I, that, the only way I can say it is that's what I feel. It was like it was when I when I chose when I chose Celtics in seven. That was what I that that's just what I felt. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at. If I had to pick either one of the, because I'm not gonna do the the political, I'm, I'm gonna pick one or the other. Damn! So you were right on the Celtics Raptors one that we predicted. Yeah, I had Raptors in seven. Is this our second prediction? This Did is we our have- like this is our well we predicted uh the Nuggets Lakers as well to an extent, although not at the beginning of the series. I think. Uh- all right, considering it's like ninety degrees in the Bay. Considering it's hot as hell outside. Oh, uh, yeah. I know you want to say it. I'm going to just say it. I'm going to say it. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to say it in six. I'm going to say it in seven. I'm going to say Miami Heat in seven. There's no way it's only going six. I think it's going to be tough as hell. I think there's going to be a game when it's going to be like 110, 107. I also think there's going to be a game when it's like 97 95 there's gonna definitely be at least two rock fights really picking against the lakers during the kobe tribute season really going against the ghost of kobe right are now. you are you making are you putting that narrative on yeah. me that narrative bullshit yeah. on me? <laughs> shout out journalism all right speaking of if we're gonna mention the the kobe and obviously like r.i.p kobe um but if we're gonna allude to the kobe thing I need the Black Mamba jerseys and the Miami Vice jerseys at least one game. 
This is honestly more important than prediction. Like, my, if that happens, my TV, like, my TV just might explode. In HD, 1080p. I, I don't think I could take that. Just like it's too visually appealing. Please, they have to wear the Miami Vice jerseys. They have to do it. They haven't worn them all playoffs, and I'm I don't understand why. What's the deal. What's the deal? Come on, Miami. You got to bust those out at least. I will not be surprised if Miami wins the series, though. I will not be shocked. Yeah, I won't be shocked either way. Like, the only thing that would shock me is if this series was over in five games. Like, a six-game series wouldn't shock me, but a five-game series would. And a four-game series especially, like, goes well, without saying. I, I actually can't even fathom. I can't fathom a sweep in this series. I can't. It's, like, this is... And again, no disrespect to the uh, the Blazers, no disrespect to the Rockets, no disrespect to the Nuggets, but this is the best team that Miami or that the Lakers have played this entire postseason run. I think they present looks that the Lakers haven't seen in the postseason, both on offense and defense, and they sure as hell have a coach that at least people outside of LeBron haven't seen. And so, just to for anyone that's confused about what my prediction is. Heat and seven. Heat and seven. I got Lakers and seven. Lock it in. Lock it in. Lock it in. So I do want to get into the MLB postseason. I know this is kind of going to be a super long podcast, as is with our discussion about the MLB postseason. But before that, Rory, we've got some breaking news. We got a Woj bomb. A Woj bomb? A Woj nuclear bomb. Oh, my God, what? Doc Rivers is out as the Los Angeles Clippers head coach. Wow. What? And this, yep. I'm pretty sure I was I'm pretty sure I've said on this podcast that his job was safe. I'm I'm like pretty sure I said that at some point. I didn't think they were gonna do it. They did the madman did it, Rory. They did it. Dude. I mean, isn't he responsible for three three one leads being blown in his career? He has like a 23% share of all of the blown 3-1 leads in NBA history. And honestly, as much as I, as much as I thought he was going to stay, and I think someone even brought up a point that Doc is almost more the face of the Clippers than like the Lob City era, than CP3, than Kawhi, than Blake Griffin, than DeAndre Jordan, than anybody. He's kind of been the face of the Clippers throughout the decade, but... I honestly, I, it's, it's not shocking. I know I'm, I'm sounding shocked, but that's more so because I didn't think the Clippers had the capacity to pull the trigger. But kind of going back to what unfolded in the, the Nuggets series, I, like, I know that Kawhi and Paul George didn't play that well. Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell didn't play that well. But going back to that series, I did, like, in terms of – I know it's kind of hard to just pin responsibility on one person, but in terms of like the blame hierarchy, if we're, if we're going the, the whole, the whole pyramid, throwing up the, yeah. the Illuminati, but in terms of those people that I felt were responsible for that series, I kind of put doc at the forefront of that just because there was this, this kind of stubbornness to keep playing Montrez Harrell, only playing Avicii Zubats like 14 minutes in game seven. Jermichael Green was playing much much better than Montrez, but there was kind of a stubbornness to playing him. Putting Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell as horrible as a defensive tandem they are on the floor at the same time, it's 
it's not shocking, but it is. That's kind of what I'm feeling right now. And I and if we're gonna speculate as to who's the next head coach, my mind is instantly gravitating towards Tyron Lue. Just keep like I think Tyron Lue was gonna be one of the most coveted head coaches of this off season. I thought he probably would have been if anywhere, like a great co- a great fit for Philly just because of how creative he likes to get with some of his schemes, how he can kind of – I, I, like, I would have I preferred Lou more in that Philadelphia scheme just because I think he could have instilled more of a culture of accountability with Embiid and Simmons, in particular getting Embiid to just – or not Embiid, getting Simmons to just take threes after just straight up not listening to Brett Brown. But if we're doing some early speculation as to who's going to be the next head coach – of the Clippers and the next head coach might be announced by the time this podcast gets put out, but that's kind of my early favorite as to who's taking the reins, man. You know, doc rivers, he deserved to get fired. Cause if you blow a season like this in the fashion that they did, where it looked like they tuned him out and just straight up give up. I mean, you, you got to get fired for that. That's it for you. And he was a horrible GM as well. Remember when he was the coach GM? Oh, man. That was bad. So, you know what? I don't think anyone has been able to ride one championship longer than Doc Rivers has. The man's gotten outcoached plenty of times. And players were tuning him out, it seemed like. And you blow that many 3-1 leads. I don't know if you're the one to bring him to the promised land. But that is shocking to hear right now. Before the finals. I know. I, just, I guess I kind of expected the Clippers to, if they were going to fire Doc, to just wait a few months. But Steve Ballmer, he went in there. <laughs> Shaking it up. Doc, sweating. Oh, my God. Honestly, wouldn't be surprised if by the time next season rolls around, the only holdover from the eight-seed Clippers, the ones that took the Warriors to six games, if the only holdovers from that team were like Zubak, Green, and Shamit. So no Beverly, no Harrell, no Lou Will. No Doc. I, would, I wouldn't be that I – would, I think they might keep Beverly. I think they might keep him in the mix. But – I like this. I like it. I, I just feel like the Clippers are in the midst of – was going to clip. Lacking of a better term, just shaking some shit up. Now, do I think that's a good thing? Because Wait, does this mean Doc is going to coach Philly? Start the rumor mill. Start the speculation. Oh, back to the Atlantic Division we go. I like that, that. Would spice up the 76ers Celtics little ride. I would like that. I would like that. Wow, man. I haven't had a Woj bomb in a while. Just letting that wash over me. Damn. What do you think Kawhi Leonard's reaction was when he read that? Do you think his face changed? I think Paul George was like, I don't understand. It wasn't championship or bust. Why are they so angry? (laughs) I think Kawhi hit it with the, damn, that's crazy. Damn, that's crazy. Anyways. I'll be easy. (laughs) Yeah, I was when we started recording this. I was not mentally prepared for that. Time. I like that. I, mean, I like yeah, that I'm not, reaction. I had not. I had no idea. I had no idea. 
I mean, not, neither of us were. I just <laughs> when we we took like a slight break to grab some water, but I just checked my phone and then I checked the DMs, and that's all that people are sending me. Doc is gone. Man. Wait, what was the reaction like? Are people like feel like it's unfair or? I think it's been too soon to like gauge a reaction. I mean, I've, I only checked that. That's all I saw. I didn't really have enough time to scroll down the Twitter timeline. It's not like for me personally, I don't feel as if it's necessarily unfair. Like it's I think especially after. Oh, you lost <laughs> to the Nuggets. Your championship or bus team, and that's not to disrespect the Nuggets, but come on. Yes, especially after you were, it was a championship or bus season. Three one. How many draft picks did you trade away? All of them, literally all of them. Yeah, it's a how to pay. The guillotine came for his head. The guillotine yeah. came for his head. I mean, we'll see. Again, I guess as the the finals roll along, we'll kind of update where the Los Angeles Clippers, what direction they go in in regards to head coach. But fun little mid-podcast Woj Bomb. I don't think that's ever happened to us. No, that's never happened. At least something to that degree. Doc Rivers. Happy trails, Doc Rivers. Uh, Go to Hawaii, meditate for a minute. Can't wait to see you on Inside the NBA. Cancun on three. <laughs> but before we get out of here, I do want to talk about the MLB playoffs. They, those start uh, tomorrow, today, as you'll be listening to this, in addition to the NBA Finals starting on Wednesday. This is going to be the first season they run with the expanded 16-team format. Hopefully it's the last – I guess we could start there. I, hopefully this is the last time that they do this because we haven't even played a single game with this expanded playoff format. And I already hate it. You have two teams in the Houston Astros and the Milwaukee Brewers that have winning records. You have, I, I, for all, I know, I know how much you hate the Dodgers, but the fact that you have the Los Angeles Dodgers who were on pace to win 116 games in the regular season, which would have put them, which would have tied them for the most regular season wins, going against a team that doesn't even have a winning record. And you already, and we already know that Major League Baseball's playoffs are a crapshoot. You're basically making this entire thing just become like a best of three series. It's there are so many things wrong with this expanded format. It's dis it's disincentivizes not disincentivizes it disadvantages greatness. It disadvantages you if you are a great team. There it blurs the line between what we consider a playoff team. There's just there's so many different points. I'm just going to throw it over to you before I just go on my tangent, but there are so many different things that I despise about this expanded playoff format. And the thing is, there's a lot of unintended consequences that are going to come as a result of this as well. Like how are the Astros a higher seed than the White Sox? That's the thing. It kind of reminds me of the end. Remember that one year when the Portland Trailblazers were like a higher seed with the worst record because they won their division? It's basically like that. It, that is where it just doesn't make any sense. Like, what a terrible system they have where it's like, oh, because the Astros were second place in the AL West. The White Sox are the seventh seed, even though they had a much better record. I think the Astros are, what, 29-31? Or like, um, yeah. Yeah. Like 
how were they a higher seed than the White Sox, who had a much, much better season? It's ridiculous. And I agree that, you know, you could be a team like the Dodgers, who is a historically great team, and then you, you know, run into the weirdness of baseball and you lose a three-game series against a horrible Milwaukee Brewers team. Like, so flawed. So damn flawed. It really pisses me off. And what sucks is we – Honestly, this is what it's going to be in the future. This is not a one-time thing. This is what the MLB playoffs are going to be because of that TV money that you get. And playoff baseball is the only time that baseball gets a national audience, which means more advertisers, more viewership, more money. They're going to keep this. This is the way it's going to be. And unfortunately, you're going to have, like you said, unintended consequences, and it's just bad for the game. Simple as that. I do want to get into some of those like unintended consequences of doing this. But before that, I do want to note that given the way that this year has gone with the canceled minor league season, losing so much gate revenue, it does make sense to have the expanded playoffs in this year. Just because all the teams are losing so much money. And I know we can kind of get into the oh, like our joke about how oh, Major League Baseball isn't really that profitable, like our little – little sarcasm there. It's like, why would Patrick Mahomes invest in the Royals when baseball isn't profitable? But we do have to kind of face the reality that a lot of these teams are losing a lot of money and it probably is going to affect the free agent market. Probably more significant as to why Mookie Betts got the money when he did. But I really want to get into just some of the problems. And I do kind of want to get into some of these matches because I think even with as much as I despise it, if you just kind of embrace the weirdness of it, and just kind of take it for what it is, take it at face value. It can be fun. But I do want to clue people in as to why this can be so bad. Because it's not just a matter of lack of, like, legitimate playoff teams. So, although that is one of the points. Because Major League Baseball has had the most competitive playoff field of any of the major American sports. I Like, before uh, they expanded, so in 20, from 2019, or from 2012, to 2019, it was 10-team format, which meant only 30% of the teams made it. Compare that to the NBA, where it's 50%, the NFL, where it's 44%. That's a stark discrepancy to where you, you can't just luck your way into the playoffs. You have to actually have the intention of wanting to make the playoffs. And I think with the former format, and I'm curious as to your opinion on this, I think the wildcard game format was the perfect, kind of that perfect solution. Because if we go to like from the one game wild card, go, yeah. Because if we go to the if we go back in the history, if we go to the two round format, which is I believe from 1969 to 1993. I know it started in '94, although there was no playoffs. But if we go from that period, it was actually there was actually two few teams in the playoffs. It was just whoever won the East and whoever won the West, and there was there was no Central. The famous but, case of the Giants winning 103 games and not making the playoffs in 93. And I think the, that was actually the record for in, – in terms of that two-round uh, format, that was the team that had won the most games under that format to not make the playoffs because the Atlanta Braves won like 104 games. But the problem with the wild card format, which is the four teams total, was that there was no legitimate disadvantage for that wild card team for not winning their division. And what I mean by that is if you were the wild card team, 
you could still like you wouldn't have home field advantage, but so would the, the number three seed wouldn't have home field advantage either. So you essentially, as a wild card team, had the same advantages as a team that actually won their division. That means you could set your rotations, you can kind of line everything up. And again, once you get into the playoffs, it's kind of a crapshoot where, as we saw with the Washington Nationals, you can be the, the inferior team and still win the World Series. What I think was what made the wild card game era format perfect is that there was a legitimate there was a, little, a legitimate disadvantage for not winning your division because you had to play the wild card game, which is a do or die. That means you have to start your best pitcher, which means if you make it to the NLDS, now your rotation's messed up. Going back to the, when the Giants were in the wild card game in 2014, they pitched Madison Bumgarner in, in the wild card game against the Pirates, throws a complete game shutout. He doesn't pitch until game three of the NLDS. So that's a legitimate disadvantage for that wild card team. And I, that's what I mean when I think that was the perfect solution where there was a little more, there, there were a couple more teams that made it in. It wasn't as exclusive, but now you had a legitimate it, like incentive to win your division. Yeah. But now that we've had, now that we have this 16 team format and it might be a 14 team, but this creates a couple problems. And I know I'm kind of, I'm kind of ranting here, but like I've thought about this for like <laughs> for so long, I've researched this and I've gone into like really into it. So one of the problems is that you can be a significantly worse team and make the playoffs. And that's, this isn't even talking about the competitive aspect of it or the crapshoot aspect of it when it gets to the playoffs. This leads to a question if you're like a, an 80-win team. If you're an 80-win team and you can make the postseason, why would you spend in free agency? There's legitimately no reason for you if – you can be mediocre and make the playoffs. You can be mediocre, make the playoffs, and it's like, why would you spend fifteen million on like like Mike Mustakas? We brought him up a couple times on this podcast. If you're the Milwaukee Brewers and you made the playoffs without Mike Mustakas, despite having all of these deficiencies on your team, would you rather spend that fifteen million or would you rather just patch together, like have a couple minor leaguers, have some minor league contract? So then, if teams aren't spending in free agency, what that essentially does is that drives down the price of those middle tier free agents. Now the superstars, they're always, they're pretty much always going to get their money. But if you're in that middle class area, which is most players, which is most players, the price of your labor is going to go down, which in my eyes, this leads to another problem. The players hate this. If you're a player, why would you want the expanded format? Like we already know how the players and the owners in Major League, Major League Baseball at, all, at large are kind of feuding right now. And if we're going – and the collective bargaining agreement is set to expire in 2021, if Major League Baseball really pushes this expanded playoffs hard going forward, this can create just another fissure between the players and the owners. And considering how things went before this season with all the bad contracts, all the bad faith negotiation – it's really not hard to envision there being another strike in 2021, which considering we, you know, knock on wood, I hope we're not still facing the same pandemic that we are right now. But see Dr. Anthony Fauci saying that things might not go back to normal until the end of 2021, all things considered, that's a bad look for baseball. Another bad look for baseball after 
all the infighting that went on this year. So that was that was a lot, Rory. I apologize. I wanted to like machine gun Kelly like my point. No, you got it. You got to go on your soapbox. You know. <laughs> but I think I guess MLB's argument would be well, this is gonna create more revenue for the organization. It's gonna mean more money to go around for everybody because there's more money coming in from advertisers, from TV deals, etc. So really you're going to have more money to play with. Now, of course we know that actually what's going to happen is the owners are just going to line their pockets even more while still not paying the players. Like, I don't think you're going to see bonuses for players or wages go up or you're going to see his owners being like, Oh sweet, more money. Give me that. They're not going to be, you know, in a charitable mood necessarily. Sounds like a trickle down economics. Yeah. You just got to have more money at the top, and it trickles down, Rory. Rob Manfred, he's, he's in that school of thought. He really is. Essentially a, another uh, legacy tarnishing thing to put on the resume. Yeah. My this opinion. is something that we probably won't see the effects of for a few years, I suppose. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's too early to tell, but that's just kind of my – It does feel like it's here to stay, to. though, because of the money, the TV money. Yeah, and Manfred, he had that quote a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about how the expanded playoffs could potentially be part of the future. Now, the big thing with the expanded playoffs is that the players and the owners have to come to an agreement. So that kind of leaves it up in the air. But it's more so just the general idea that there's a willingness to keep this around, which right. is the cause for concern. Right. Agreed. Well. But now that we've had that fun conversation about the doom and gloom of baseball, uh, let's actually get into some of the matchups because as unfun as it is to talk about the semantics of baseball and the politics, the game still is pretty fun. Don't, don't, don't be mistaken. Yeah, baseball's best TV. Don't, don't get it twisted. The bat flips are – they're coming. The yeah. – Playoff baseball, nothing like it, man. They're really the illegal so substances on the – are upon yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. Like Cy Young candidate. <laughs> So I guess we could start in the National League since I did allude to uh, the Dodgers. So I'm just going to run through these matchups. Number one seeded Dodgers going against the number eight seeded Brewers. Number two seeded Braves going against the number seven Reds. Number three Cubs going against the number six Marlins. Marlins actually made it in, Rory. And it's honestly the best story. Of it's the, the best year. story in baseball. And then the number four Padres against the number five Cardinals. And Rory, I'm just going to – I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to come out and say it. Reds are upsetting the Braves. I'm putting it on wax. Wow. Okay. Make the case. The, the Reds' rotation is built for a three-game playoff. It is perfectly built for this three-game format. You, throw, you start Trevor Bauer, who might win the NL Cy Young. Then you have Luis Castillo, who is in the top ten in F4, according to Fangraphs. And then your third pitcher is Sonny Gray, who last year had, especially in the latter half of 2019, was pitching like a Cy Young. You go over to the Atlanta side, you have Max Freed, really good starter, but there's no Mike Soroka. Fulte got DFA'd like three games into this, or three starts into the season, so no Fulton Evitz. And then Tuki Tassant, he just hasn't been great. Luki Sasan, as for as much swagger as he's got, he's probably not going to be starting. So then your game two and your game three starters, Ian Anderson and Kyle Wright. 
Okay, but here's the thing. Braves, great bullpen, right? Pretty deep bullpen. They do have a pretty solid bullpen. They also have Freddie Freeman, who, in my opinion, is the NL MVP. Which is insane. This man had COVID. Ronald Almost Acuna. died. Was literally praying for his life. Now he's going to be MVP. And then you throw, of course, Ronald Acuna Jr. into the mix. They have right. a really good lineup. I just think that – and the thing is, the Reds are clicking at the right time, too. They've won 10 of their last 13 games. So – and then Bowers, like his last start was phenomenal. Like that kind of was like the nail in the coffin of his Cy Young award race. Bowers playing for a big contract right now. The thing about okay, this is a real question. Do you think Bowers still does the one year contract thing? No, I think he's looking to get that long term money. I think he's pitching himself. Like this is gonna be the highest value he's ever had. I think, especially with COVID too. Like I know he he sounds like he's pretty adamant about taking one-year deals the entirety of his career so he can always be where he wants to be, maximize earnings. It's just like, considering the state of affairs, I don't think that's the brightest thing to do. But Dude, he's going to get some great offers, some great offers. Because he's looked the best he's ever looked in his career. I think some of that might have to do with uh, some uh, illegal substance. Oh. I'm, I'm fully all in on the – the fact that he's he's doing it, like putting something on the ball. Wow, he, really? Because if you remember, he basically like, he tried to be like the spin rate police. When Justin Verlander's spin rate magically went up in Houston, he went on a little Twitter tirade, and he t- he tweeted or he said publicly that he knew he could add like some amount of spin rate with an illegal substance, and he's tried it out and he's done it. And if you look to what he said would be the results, if he put in a legal substance and what his actual spin rate is. Wow. It's parallel. It's in I, I, I legitimately think he's daring Major League Baseball to do something because it's kind of a well-known thing that a majority of pitchers in the game do it. But for him to call it out, to say what his spin rate would be if he put illegal substances on the ball, and then for his spin rate to be exactly what it is, one plus one equals. I'm, I'm gonna leave that one alone. I'm gonna leave that one. Alone. <laughs> All right, let, let's transition to these other series again: Dodgers, Brewers, Cubs, Marlins, and Padres, Cardinals. For those three series, I kind of have the the higher seed winning in all three of those. I am curious in the Dodgers Brewers series if Christian Yelich kind of reverts to the mean there because I was looking at the numbers and his exit velocity was actually a career high. Although, like, for as bad as his traditional stats were, his exit velocity was at a career high. I think it was 93.8 miles per hour. He got, he got Babbitt hard. For those who don't know what Babbitt, it's ball. Get huh? Babbitt. When are you going to make a shirt, a Babbitt shirt? I need that. But for, for those who don't know what Babbitt is, batting aver- it stands for batting average on balls in play. And typically, it's, it's kind of an indicator of whether you're lucky or unlucky. And it's one of those stats where, like, you need a sample size of several years to determine what it's going to typically look like on a year-to-year basis. Now, there's obviously going to be some variation, but if you have a BABIP that's super high, that means your batting average is probably going to be super high. That means you're getting lucky. If it's low relative to your career average, that means you're getting very unlucky. So Yelich, coming into this season, his career BABIP was 358. His BABIP this year was... 255 
while hitting the ball harder than ever. <laughs> like he's still in like the 90th percentile of like exit velocity. Like he's still hitting wow. the hell out of the ball. And I don't know what could happen in the three game series, but I also wouldn't be surprised if Yelich hits like 700 <laughs> in like this three games. If he just like, if all those balls that were catching gloves just start like finding grass or finding the bleachers. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this Brewers team is good enough, obviously, to go full We Believe Warriors number eight seed, but I can see Yelich turn around, turn it on. So you're really picking all the number one seeds, though, because I'm not that confident with the Cubs. Hmm. I just Chris Bryant Baez have not been good. This has been flat out bad. I know you you pointed out the rotation, but you know Miami, they they've got something. That's going. the real we believe. Yeah, Miami. Like, would you be shocked if the Marlins beat the Cubs? Like, really? I mean, like, I wouldn't be. I don't know if shocked is the right word. I would kind of. It would be like. I would raise my eyebrows. Like, nothing would shock me in the three. The only thing that would shock me. What makes you so confident with the Cubs, though? I mean, I know the pitching, but this offense. The Cubs have been – it's been weird with the Cubs just because while Bryant and Baez haven't been playing well, like Jason Hayward's been playing well, Ian Happ has been hitting well, it's kind of been more so like our enti- – like, Are they going to bring it in the playoffs, though? Well, that, that's the thing about the playoffs. It's just like a three-game sample size. Yeah. Like anything can happen, which I guess that kind of fuels your also with the Padres with the Padres injuries and just San Diego sports curses being what they are. And St. Louis just being that wily team that always finds a way into the postseason and always finds a way to advance. I would not be shocked if the Padres blow this first round. They have a lot of injuries right now. Tatis has slowed down. I mean, I know they uh, just got off beating the Giants on some horrible calls to end our season. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I love this Padres team, but they are peaking a little early. And these young teams that are hot and trendy sometimes kind of fall flat in the playoffs. Yeah, I think with the Padres in particular, it's really going to depend on whether Denelson Lomet and Mike Clevenger are pitching. If yeah. – their one, two, three rotation for games one and two and three are Lamette, Clevenger, and Davies. Then I have more confidence in that team. You also got to consider that Will Myers is having a career year. Eric Hosmer is having a career Grisham. year. Manny, Trent Grisham, like a year after having that. The bat flip uh, king. The bat flip king. A year after having that bluff with the Brewers has turned himself into one of Major League Baseball's more enticing outfielders. Yeah. And then even 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 with the that one two three rotation, you also have some excellent arms in the bullpen. Chris Paddock will also probably be available, even though he hasn't had the best of seasons. And if they're able to have that rotation, I can easily I can see them overpowering the Cardinals bats. A stat that I want to throw at you is of the eleven batters on the Cardinals who have had at least hundred plate appearances, only four have a WRC plus over hundred. And it's like the low, aside from Paul Goldschmidt, who's like kind of reverted back to MVP form, aside from him, it's kind of like the low hundreds too. Like no one's really hitting exceptionally on that team. No. I mean, they're not even playing nine inning games. It's all these seven inning double headers, right? <laughs> yeah. They didn't even play 60 games. They played 58. It's honestly a travesty there, even in the postseason. I would have booted them out of the league. <laughs> you were ready to boot them out of here. But that's why I just feel like. So- 
look, base. There's always going to be one upset. You got to pick. You can't just go full chalk. Well, that's why I'm picking the Reds. I'm picking the Reds to be. Uh, that's true. That's true. Okay. I think going to the Marlins, though, like going back to that series. I could see it, man. I'm so excited to see Sixto Sanchez pitch against Ooh. them. That's going to be so much fun. Dude, the fish. Dude, and the Marlins. They've never lost a postseason series. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Galaxy Brain meme. Bro, Miami Heat, Miami Marlins. We out here. That's the thing, too, is like – the one thing that's interesting about these playoffs in particular is that here, let, let me examine the, the matchup real quick, because I don't think any of these teams have seen each other. Let me see. Well, the Rays and the Blue Jays, they've seen each other. Yeah. But that's yeah. it. Like if we're again, because that's the way that it was structured with the regions. So the Dodgers right. and the Brewers haven't seen each other. Braves and the Reds haven't. Twins and White Sox just narrowly avoided having to play each other. That would have been fun. That would have been fun. Ooh. I That's think what it should be this garbage six seed, seven seed. Oh my god. Just, yeah, it's bad. Do you want to get into the AL? What was that? Do you want to get into the AL? Uh, let me nail down this the Sixto Sanchez point real oh, quick. Yeah. Because the one thing with Sixto, not only is he a rookie, and rookies tend to have that kind of that advantage young in their career in that no one's really seen them and no one can really there's no experience there. But the Cubs haven't even seen him, period, because of the way that this is structured. And then you also got to figure out – you also got to figure in how Javier Baez, one of the reasons that he's struggling has, because, has been because of a lack of in-game video access. So he has one bad oh, attack against Sanchez. Excuse? He's, been, he's been saying that's one of the reasons for his struggles. It's like everyone has to deal with it, you know? You, you got to adjust. That's true. Going back to the uh, old travel ball days, you didn't have the, the iPad back in the old travel ball days. But transitioning to the American League side of things, we have the number one Rays versus the number eight Blue Jays, the number two A's versus the number seven White Sox, uh, the number three Twins versus the number six Astros, and the number four Spiders. Again, uh, that team in Cleveland versus the number five Yankees. I got a couple upsets in here. Dang. I will say, well, it's just it's the one upset. Just so you wait, you just have one upset. I have one upset in the American League. I think the White Sox are going to beat the A's. That's Dude, my okay, upset. yeah. That's my upset. It's not even an upset. It's an upset on it based is. on seeding, but not based on record. I think the the White Sox and the A's only have like one win separating them, which is again the like the A's getting super unlucky here, because why like why wouldn't they just get well, I mean the the I think the a the the Rays would get the Astros if we were just doing this by like normal wins and losses. But then the A's would get like the Blue Jays, right? It just feels like White Sox have a better lineup and a better rotation, right? I'm not as bullish on the White Sox rotation, although I I am super excited to see. Not a Dallas Keuchel fan. It's not. It's not necessarily that. I'm a fan of like Lucas Giolito and Dallas Keuchel is that one too. It's just once we get to that third option, I'm kind of just like, I know you can go with Dane Dunning. And I'm like, mm, I, yeah. I haven't really, because Dane Dunning is a rookie and I'm curious, like I don't necessarily know how he would handle on that stage. But the one pitcher that I'm looking forward to so much is Garrett Crochet. Like no minor leagues, straight to the big, throwing 102, like, that's Again, enough. in that in the same vein of Sixto Sanchez, like the A's haven't seen anything like this dude. No. 
But uh, I think it is a it is an interesting matchup because the A's rotation heading into the season on paper seemed really good. You had Jesus Luzardo, Sean Manaya, Frankie Montas, Mike Fires, and then you had Chris Bassett, and then you threw Mike Miner into the mix. But Chris Bassett, just by the numbers, is their best starter this year. That's not how they drew it up. I was, I'm, also for, I'm also forgetting they would have had A.J. Puck without injuries. Yeah. I mean, had the, the looks to be like a really good rotation, and that just didn't materialize. Really, it's their bullpen that's their strength, right? Liam Hendricks, great closer. Petit's been good. Joaquin Soria is going to pitch forever. Yeah. So it's really their, their bullpen. Deekman's good as well. But this, the rotation is, I mean, it's not good. And losing Matt Chapman, like, I don't know how they can go deep without Chapman. Yeah, it's not even just the talent aspect of it. He's one of the main guys in that locker room, too. And I don't think he's going to be with – well, I know that he wasn't with the team when he was initially injured, but I don't know if he's going to be with the team during the playoff run, especially considering protocols. And, like, maybe you have an MVP candidate – I mean, MVP leader in Abreu on the White Sox. Tim Anderson. Short King Nick Madrigal taking yeah. the crown from Jose Altuve. Luis Robert. I don't care how they say it on TV. Robert. I, I will say, Luis has been – he struggled hard. He's been struggled hardcore. But when the lights shine brightest, I expect this man to rise to the occasion. I really do. I'm so excited to see Tim Anderson. On national, like, dude, I feel like oh, America's going to get a great intro if they go deep to Tim Anderson. I mean, he's an MVP candidate, too, you could argue. Yeah, and then you also throw Eloy Jimenez, Yohan yeah. Montada into the mix, Yasmani Grandal, or James McCann, depending on who they throw behind They him. just feel like they have a higher ceiling than the A's, which is weird to say because A's are, you know, two seed in this. I think it's hard to look at this series in particular as like a two and a seven. It's more like a two and a three. Agreed. If we're being like real, it's more like a two and a three. Agreed. But yeah, like that, like combining like that frontline talent of Dallas Keuchel and Lucas Giolito combined with this lineup. Yeah. No offense, no offense to I live in the East Bay. No offense to all my 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 A's home. Yeah, you're really disappointing people. <laughs> Is Cleveland ranked above New York? Yeah, they're Cleveland's the number four seed. Okay. Because actually, a lot of people are picking the Yankees. I like Cleveland. I just believe in their pitching. I know their offense is garbage, far from Jose Ramirez, but Shane Bieber is historic. Bieber fever. So good. First pitcher to win the Triple Crown. Not just in, not in their league, but in the entire majors. Yeah. Since, do you want to guess who? Since who? In the entire majors. Pitcher? The last pitcher to lead the majors in all triple crown stats. So Clayton Kershaw did it. Yeah, I was going to say Kershaw. Really. But that was just his lead. That was just the National League. I'm talking about the entire game. The entire game. Was it Verlander ever do it? Verlander did it, but with the American League. Who? It was just the American League. So the whole league. I don't know. He was in the Central. AL Central? And it wasn't Verlander? This is going to be a blast from the past when I say it. Johan Santana? Yup. <laughs> Johan. Johan was a problem. Yeah. Was a problem. We got to make a, 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 a one of Instagram. those. Instagram. Remember back when, like, the early days of quarantine when we were saying, like, 
Jeremy Pargo was a problem. Yes. Sessions was a problem. Johan Santana, before, Yo, in that before the injury. stadium. Before the injuries, that man was a problem. Johan Santana was a – he was ridiculous. But yeah, to echo the words of you, I also have <laughs> Cleveland winning the series over the Yankees. The Yankees, they've really underperformed this year. And I mean, a lot their of that, offense is great, but – but a lot that's what I mean though. It's that offense has just underperformed this year. And some of it has been due to injuries. They are gonna have Judge, they are gonna have Stanton, but Gary Sanchez hasn't looked all that great. Glaber Torres hasn't looked all that great. I don't believe Gio Urshela has played all that well either. And if the offense isn't clicking kind of their bread and butter and you throw in Cleveland's pitching. I mean Luke Voigt though, if he turns into fat Barry Bonds, I don't know. It <laughs> work. I don't know. Number one Rays versus number eight Blue Jays. Uh, no offense to the Buffalo Wild Wings. But I think, uh, I think this, this is a high and by series. Dude, Glasnow. Dude, the Rays, are, I, the Rays are just ridiculous. so deep at every position. D-Man Choi out here doing fat guy things. <laughs> like Yoshi. Don't forget about the boy Yoshi Tetsuko. Like, the thing about it's it's been incredible to watch the Rays is that They've had people underperform. They've had injuries. And they just keep on chugging. Like, they won. They were one of two teams to win 40 games besides the Dodgers. And they got it with inconsistent performance and injuries, and they just kept on chugging along. Like, you can make the argument that the Rays, while they don't have the star power of the Dodgers, that they're deeper than the Dodgers. And that's saying a lot. The Rays, if they win the World Series, I won't be shocked. I will not be shocked. They are that deep. And their rotation is that good. Hashtag team analytics. Team <laughs> analytics, honestly. The the Houston Rockets of baseball. Kind yeah. of. Speaking of speaking of Houston, number three twins versus number six Astros, aka the team that didn't have a winning record. Rory, are the twins America's team? I mean, they should be. But unfortunately, Minnesota is another region that's always cursed. So I just I know Minnesota's gonna Minnesota at some point. Do you think it's the first? The I don't think it's against the Astros though, because this Astros team is just flat out not good. They're just not good, and the vibes are really bad, really, really bad. And I just—I mean, what's the path for them beating this Twins team with all these great former Dodgers? I love that <laughs> strategy. Like the Dodgers are so good, just take the players they don't want anymore. You automatically have a great team. You have a playoff team. You get some Rich Hill, sprinkle some Maeda in there. Is there some other former Dodgers on that team? I think that might be it. That might be it. That's enough. That's all you need, though. That's all you, that's all you need. A little sugar, a little, you know, a little salt and pepper right there. A little sugar, a little spice, a little everything. Uh, right. I, I like this Twins team. I don't know how confident I am in them going further than that. Some people really like them, though. I yeah, mean, I was I was higher on them heading into the season. They kind of have underperformed. They've had a lot of guys. If you just look at it by like WRC lately, I think too. Right? Like they they've had a relatively down season, at, at least kind of expectations. I mean, if your down season is the number three seed and winning your division, then yeah, not all bad. But yeah, I think that. I mean, yeah, I think that the the Twins. Handle the Astros. Let's just be honest. Astros team is just not good. They're just not good. Like, what is their biggest strength, really? Zach Greinke. 
I, I am excited to see Zach Cranky do Zach Cranky things in the playoffs. It just feels like this Astros team is waiting for the season to end. You know, and like George Springer's waiting to get into free agency. Granky's just got another year. Like, it's the end of an era. It probably already ended. Probably in that fight with Loriano. That was like, <laughs> really the end of it. That was and the, I love you, Justin Baker, but I'm just – that's it. Yeah, this, this would have been a a much different team had, like, injuries not played a factor if Justin Verlander wasn't out for the season, if Jordan Alvarez wasn't out for the season. This would have been a much different equation. But you play with who you have, and – like Lance McCullers Jr. hasn't been great. I think he might still be on the injured list. I'm not too sure. Yeah. They, they had a, a surprising season from uh, some from Framber Valdez, who I think would pitch game two. But trusting a rookie in a, uh, a playoff game, that's uh, not ideal. And it feels weird because they still have Correa, they still have Altuve, but it's just not the same. It's not the same. Since we are at still at the beginning of the playoff run and nothing has happened yet, I do want to get your pick for the World Series. Just okay. so we can just so we can say that say it before anything happens. I said I, this if the oh, if the Dodgers don't win at least two championships, it'll be a failure. This era of Dodgers baseball. This this is for the taking right now. I don't think any team in the NL is particularly that strong challenges them to a huge degree unless you really believe in this Padres team and with their injuries I don't know how you could the AL you know maybe the Rays could beat them maybe uh I don't see I know Mark Craig picked the A's I don't see that's gonna happen uh I think the Dodgers they have almost I don't want to say an easy path to the World Series but it's for the taking. And like you said, they were on pace for 116 wins. We got Mookie in this now. They don't really have any weaknesses. The Dodgers can only beat themselves at this point. They should win the World Series. And sort of easily. In my so who, who's your American League representative? Is it the Rays? I'm going to go with Tampa Bay. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going with too, both for the American League and National League and champion I like the Rays a lot. I like their depth. I like how they've been able to, to sustain, as I mentioned, just bad bad performance. I thought you might say the White Sox. Are you going to ride these White Sox? I think the the World Series that I would like to see. So the, so the two World Series that are my preference. Twins, actually. I have seen some Twins picks. I don't see that. So I, I would say my three World Series preferences are the Rays and the Dodgers – just the they kind of both embody analytics and they just do it at drastically different price points. I would like to see A's and Dodgers throw back to 1988. I think that's a fun little narrative. Yep. And I would like to see White Sox and Padres. That would just be so much fun. Like that's, assuming yeah, everyone's all young talent. So much young talent. If, at that point, that World Series, it's not going to be about who wins. They have the- too much swag. It's going to piss off like old white conservative baseball fans. Oh, yeah. That's what we want. That flip mania. Like, those would be my three preferred. I'm picking the Dodgers. I am hoping for White Sox Padres. It's kind of like what I was saying with the the Heat and the Lakers. It's like my mind is telling me something, but my heart is telling me something else. Exactly. A White Sox Padres World Series would be so much fun. And I think 
like even though it wouldn't have the name recognition of Dodgers Yankees, I think if they were able to market that talent right, that could like bring a lot of juice into oh, that's how many stars, man. Yeah. Tim Anderson, Jose Abreu. No, just the Fernando post Tatis. Tim Anderson, Fernando Tatis Jr. Like that's it. Just put those two on. That poster, that World Series poster of those two. Oh my god. Come on. That, that would be like one of the best of the like the millennium. Hands yeah. down. Hard none. That'd be such a fun matchup. Such a fun matchup. Yankees Dodgers would be great for people who don't actually watch baseball. You know, just watch it tangentially. <laughs> just pure name brand recognition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if we're That's talking about like versus Pepsi. Come on now. I mean, it would get eyeballs, but in terms of like how both, at least in terms of how the Yankees are stacked up, would work, work the Yankees. Are you kidding me? That'd be a sweep. Damn, you are not, you are not high on the Yankees at all. No, no faith. No zero. No faith, faith on the Bombers. No, it would be cool to see Garrett Cole versus uh, Kershaw. That would be sick. That would be fun. That would be sick. But to see how accurate, we'll see how accurate we are. On these predictions, this was a long episode. This is wait. So Wednesday NBA Finals and Wednesday is the playoffs starting for baseball. Yeah, not only so the playoffs for baseball start on Tuesday, but on Wednesday we have eight games. They begin at nine a.m. and they're <laughs> probably going to end around ten. Hump day that's, for sure. Hump that's going to be a fun show. We're probably going to miss. That I mean, I'll probably miss that first. I'm gonna be at work. I'm gonna be checking. I'm just gonna be blowing up your phone, just like spamming you three different games happening at the same time. Bro, G Man Choi hit three homers. (laughs) Hey, Yandy Diaz hit two homers in the wild card game last year. It could happen. Yo, playoff baseball must see TV. I wonder how it's gonna split the ratings on both sides on Wednesday. I feel like I actually don't care about ratings. I hate conversations about ratings. Like it's one of my favorite topics, but it's kind of interesting. The only game that's really going to be a well, for one, it's a matter of like there's going to be there's going to be people like in at work at school and school. So there's that. Like, what if baseball outdrew NBA Finals Game One? That would be insane. It would because that because the competition for that game is Brewers Dodgers. I don't. Yeah. As much as I would, as much as much it. name brand recognition the Dodgers have, I, they are not outdrawing the other team in LA. No. But Rory, this has been the longest podcast we've ever done. Even going back to you got a lot of days. Season, I think appropriately though, because so much to cover between the finals and sixteen different playoff teams. We'll see how accurate we are on those finals predictions. We'll see how accurate we are on these playoff predictions. We'll see who's the next head coach of the Los Angeles Clippers. I forgot we even talked about that in this episode. Dude. But until next time, and I promise that the next couple of episodes that we do, they're going to be like finals recaps. They're going to be much shorter, like 30 minutes. But until next time, Justice De Los Santos, Massimo of Moxie, Rory O'Toole, Splash Considerations Podcast. Drink your water, wear your mask, text your friends. Peace. Peace.